Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, you can see that the ambulance is out there on the field, and they are intensely working on DeMar Hamlin. Well, I mean, look at the faces. That's DeMar Hamlin's teammates there on the field showing the horror we all feel this morning after that terrifying collapse on the football field last night. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us this CNN this morning. I mean, it is really, really tough to watch, and frankly... Um, showing the video is we went back and forth on whether we should show it, but we think you should see it, and then we won't play it that much. But I'm Don Lemon, Poppy Harley. You see Caitlin is there live in Washington. Caitlin's going to take us through the day, what's going to happen starting today with the new Congress. But, man, the big story, of course, is what's happening in the NFL. He is in critical condition at this hour after collapsing mid-game. More to come on that. That's right. What we are now learning about Hamlin's condition, how did this happen? And we'll tell you the league's response in the aftermath. Today, with only hours to go before Republicans take control of the House, Kevin McCarthy is still struggling to get the votes that he would need to become Speaker. We'll tell you what happens if he falls short. But we're going to begin with that terrible incident on the field during Monday night football. Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin collapsing after making a tackle in the first quarter of the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bills say that he suffered cardiac arrest and his heartbeat was restored on the field. An NFL player revived in the middle of a game, revived in the middle of a game. He is in critical condition at this hour at a Cincinnati hospital. While medical personnel worked to revive Hamlin, players on both teams were overcome with emotion and consoling each other. Tributes have been pouring in from the sports world and beyond with people sending their thoughts and prayers for Hamlin. I want to get straight to CNN's Adrian brought us live in Cincinnati for us this morning. Adrian, hello to you. The latest on DeMar's condition. Good morning to you, Don. He is listed critical but stable condition. He has played every game this season with his team. Normally, he's on the field fighting to lead his team to victory. But this morning, that 24-year-old is at this hospital fighting for his life. The first Monday night football game of 2023 between the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals ends abruptly in tragedy after Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin's tackle on Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins. To midfield and lowers the shoulder. You see Hamlin standing briefly and then collapsing on the field. And now another Bills player is down. When I saw that young man fall to the ground the way he did, it, um, it, it, it felt like my soul had left my body. Within minutes after Hamlin's collapse, medical staff started CPR on him right on the field. Usually you see players gather around a player, and that happened tonight, but when they saw them start doing chest compressions, you saw the reaction of those players walking away and being distraught, being very emotional, the kind of thing we don't see on a football field. The 24-year-old NFL star suffered a cardiac arrest, 
according to the Bills. His heartbeat was restored on the field and an ambulance was driven onto the field to transport him to a local hospital. I've never seen anyone have CPR administered to them on the practice field or the, or the game field, so that, that's when I became concerned. Players huddled on the field visibly emotional. The NFL then postponed the game. We were not ready for this. We were not prepared for this. These are all men that spend time together, growing together, making sure that one another is all right, doing whatever you have to do for your brother. And you are now put in the hopeless position of being absolutely helpless. Hamlin is receiving care at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where fans could be seen holding vigil. NFL Executive Vice President of Football Operations Troy Vincent says some of Hamlin's teammates decided to stay behind. Hamlin's teammate Stefan Diggs was captured in this video arriving at the hospital to visit his friend and teammate. This as well wishes are pouring in from the sports world. From the Cavalier organization, we want to wish the best and, and pray and if everything goes well. The safety of our of players in, in all sports is always the most important. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a terrible thing to see. It was tough to watch. Meanwhile, the Bills publishing a tweet saying that the 24-year-old is currently sedated and will undergo further testing. Don. All right. Adrian Broadus in Cincinnati. Thank you very much. Let's bring in CNN sports anchor Coy Wire. Uh, Coy, we should remind people you played for the Bills. Also with us, Dr. Chris Purnell. She is the regent at large for the American College of Preventative Medicine. Thank you both for being here. And actually, Coy, I'm just going to begin with you because to watch that um, with a former, you know, you're a former player on that same team. You know what it's like to be on the field like, you know, almost no one else. What did you think? Uh, hi, Poppy and Don. We... Um you know, I see in those images, it scratched open a lot of mental wounds for me personally. I played six of my NFL seasons there in Buffalo in that stadium, uh, played the same position, uh, you know, played safety there. Um, I've experienced injury, loss of consciousness. One time I lost consciousness, didn't remember um, what happened till the next day. I have a titanium plate and four screws in my neck. So I'm thinking about what those emotions feel like um, during a moment like that. Um, also thought about all the players, the teammates who were rocked by this. This is a team who are tight like brothers, your coworkers, but you spend more time with your teammates during the season uh, than your spouse, than with your family. Uh, so there's strong connections there. These are players who've been through a lot, as have so many people in the city of Buffalo. Um, these are players who mourned the deaths and then rallied for the city after the mass shooting about seven months ago in Buffalo. These are players who mourned and then rallied for the people who, dozens of people who lost their lives just about a week ago in the, in the tragic uh, blizzard there in Buffalo. So this is a, these are young men um, who have been through a lot. Those are some of the things that I was thinking about. Um, you knew something wasn't right when you saw him stand up and suddenly collapse. Um, but I've been in situations where an ambulance has come on the field, so I could, it just resonates um, and scratches open a lot of mental wounds for me. Uh, having watched that last night, I was trying to watch the game as a fan, but clearly it took a, a tragic turn. So, Doctor, when you um, watch this, you know, he, he was hit, got up, and then fell down. This is, it's commodio cordis, yes, right? It's what yes. it's called. It, and, and it's caused by an abrupt blow to the chest exactly in the wrong time. 
football is a game of hits. Yes. Be surprised that it doesn't happen more often. And what did happen? Talk to us about that, please. Definitely. So first and foremost, my prayers go out to Damar Hamlin, his family, and the entire um, Bills organization. So. Actually, we see these type of events happening more often in baseball than football. It can happen in any uh, competitive or sport where there's impact, where you have a projectile or a moving body part can cause it. You have a sudden blow to the chest wall. It has to happen in the exact location at the precise timing. So in this instance, over the left ventricle, which is the lower chamber part of the heart that's responsible for pumping out that oxygenated blood, during the heartbeat, you get this stun, and then the heart becomes this... Um, uncoordinated uh, frenzy of electrical activity, uh, what, we, what we call ventricular fibrillation, which unfortunately leads to sudden cardiac arrest. So the heart just starts, instead yes. of beating, it just starts Yes, to... it's no longer beating in an organized fashion anymore. Yeah. Can, there were those critical moments of CPR on the yes. field. I think it was 16 minutes until he was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Do most people make it out of this? You know, Poppy, what we are seeing is a slow improvement in those who live through this type of event. Um, we hear anywhere from about 15 to just below 30 of these events happening that unfortunately lead to death. What is so critical and when we do see about 58% of people surviving is that you get immediate CPR and that a person has access to an AED, so an automatic external defibrillator. Yeah, and it's important, I mean, especially... It's got to be important, especially when you have these big events with a number of people yes. that you have a defibrillator yes. on hand. Most office buildings now, even this one, we have a defibrillator on hand just in, in case, which does save lives. Koi, I want to go back to you and talk about the human aspect and your personal yeah. knowledge of this, because you see, obviously, the, the emotional response from the players there, but also the, the NFL's response, the team's response, the, the, the coach's response there, um, and the discussions about safety, ongoing safety on the field and such. I imagine it was a group effort not to continue on with this game uh, from a, a lot of people involved. Yeah, I was on a conference call at about midnight Eastern time last night with the senior of, uh, executive vice president of football operations, Troy Vincent. Um, when, the, when this event happened, he's on the phone uh, with Commissioner Roger Goodell. They're on the phone with the head official. They're on the phone with both head coaches, relaying messages real time what uh, the situation is. And um, ultimately, it came to the point where Troy Vincent uh, asked the coaches if they'd like to have their teams go back to the locker room, as you're seeing there. Um, and then at that point, the coaches uh, basically uh, assessed uh, the mental state of their team and determined that it, they, it, what they had seen was, was too traumatizing and it was not worth sending them back out onto that football field. So to me, it's a, a step in the right direction. Uh, this has never happened before in the middle of a game, having it stop like this. Um, and so whereas before, there may have been a lot of uh, calls for player safety that, that rang hollow. Um, from the NFL, um, but this this was a big step um, to do this. It's showing that there has been a paradigm shift and that mm. player safety is truly important, more important than the game that we play. Um, I was on the field with my teammate for the Buffalo Bills, Kevin Everett. Um, in 2007, we were covering a kick together. He hit the wedge and he fell paralyzed to the ground. When mm. I was playing at Stanford University, my teammate, Kerry Carter, a running back, he was tackled by a player named Curtis Williams from the University of Washington. 
Number 25, he was hit. He was paralyzed from the neck down. Two years later, he lost his life due to complications from that paralysis. Both of those games, ambulances came to the field. There were players huddled. There were tears. They were crying, just like we saw last night. But those games went on. The one last night did not. I think that's a huge uh, statement that's being made and that players, coaches specifically, are really understanding that player health and safety is, is the most important thing and it should be. And that's going to echo down through the collegiate and high school and youth levels, which is vitally important that we get uh, to continue this paradigm shift. So, you know, I said today as we were talking about this story, I'm sure it's the first thing that parents thought about, especially moms, about the, with their sons. You know, mostly sons playing football. And yeah, that well, was... yeah, you knew. That's what you thought. It happened after I went to bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I woke up to it at 3 o'clock this morning, and the first thought I had was my son. And that's what every mom has. And I think, guys, if we could just show this video, I know it's not from last night, but it's from November of him, you know, giving his mom a hug, Koi. And I think that's the question that every parent has this morning. Is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is I know it? it's not a popular question to ask, but well, how do you Poppy, wrestle it is with the, that? It's actually the question to ask. It's not popular, but it's the question, Poppy, to ask. Coy, go ahead, please. Yep. The question. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, we have to remember that although it is a game that we play, this is a career path that has been chosen sometimes in situations when the time you're a child, it's your dream, it's your hope. You go to college and you study something, but you're getting there to get your degree in football because you want to be mm-hmm. a professional mm-hmm. athlete. And they've dedicated their lives to this. And we understand the risks and the consequences, especially in now uh, today more than ever. And, uh, w- but we take very seriously how dangerous it is. Um, it's not many places of work that you go to, uh, Don and Poppy, where before you go out there to perform or execute your job for the day, that you all huddle around, get down on a knee, and say the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. That is commonplace in the NFL. Uh, we understand um, that you cannot take any play for granted that every play um, you're putting your life at risk. And um, yeah. this is just reminding us how precious life is. Yeah. And so, Poppy, hug that son a little tighter tonight, right, when you get home. And, um, and we, we all just remember that um, how dangerous yeah. this sport is, and we should be grateful for the players who go out there and perform for us. Yeah, really beautifully said, and we're really grateful for you, uh, Coy. Thank you very much. And to you, Dr. Purnell, very grateful. Thank you. So we're going to cover this, of course, all morning. We're waiting for a lot of updates from the hospitals, and we'll let you know uh, what we hear. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us as well. Uh, Current and former football players are with us. We are covering all the developments as this develops this morning, so stay with us. Caitlin. Also here in Washington, a lot of news going on as it is day one of the new Congress, and Kevin McCarthy is still scrambling for the votes that he needs to become the next House Speaker. I'm live on Capitol Hill next. And the suspect in the killing of four Idaho college students is due in court today in Pennsylvania. We're going to tell you what to expect. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. I am live on Capitol Hill, where the new Congress is set to convene today. But before members take their oaths of office, the House must elect a speaker. Kevin McCarthy so far is acting confident, moving his boxes into the Speaker's office, as you see here. But if he does not get 218 votes, he will not be in that office for much longer. Even after making concession after concession to try to coax far-right 
ultra-conservative members to back him. It is still unclear this morning if he can actually get the support that he needs, the 218 votes that he needs, to become House Speaker. It will be historic if he does not win in a first-round floor vote in just a few hours from now. A leader trying to be Speaker has not lost a first-round vote in nearly a century. Every Speaker since 1923 has been able to clinch the gavel after just one vote. CNN's Lauren Fox joins me now. Uh, Lauren, I know Kevin McCarthy's been trying to get the votes. He was working on the phone even until late last night. But where does it stand as of 6 a.m. this morning? Well, we are on the precipice of what could be a very messy day on Capitol Hill, Caitlin. And sources that I'm talking to and have been talking to over the last week genuinely do not know what is going to happen today. Happy New Year. I, for one, am excited for 2023. A speakership hanging in the balance. After months of outreach, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy heads to the floor Tuesday unsure if he has the votes to be the next speaker. On Monday, McCarthy was asked the same question. Do you have the, speak the votes for speaker tomorrow? Take away have a good day tomorrow. A revealing answer showing the math problem McCarthy's been battling for weeks. With a narrow majority, he can only afford to lose four Republican votes. So far, five Republicans have publicly said they'd vote against him. Nine more, penning a letter warning his attempts to win them over, have been too little too late. Still, allies say McCarthy isn't going to bow out of the race. He's worked very hard to get the, to get the votes. He's worked very hard to earn the job as speaker. Uh, and we'll see whether this has placated the people that uh, put out a list of demands. He's gone really right up to the line. He's conceded on virtually everything that was on that two-page document. McCarthy is determined to win, even if that means multiple rounds of balloting on the House floor, something that hasn't happened for a century. Behind the scenes, McCarthy's still scrambling for support, making key concessions to conservatives. One of them, a rules change that would weaken the power of the very job he's vying for and lower the threshold it takes to call for a vote to oust the speaker, from a majority to just five members. And there's nothing he's done to earn my vote. I, I suspect 10 to 15 members will vote against him on the first ballot. And there's some real practical implications if McCarthy cannot secure the votes today to be the speaker. If he doesn't get the votes, Caitlin, they can't pass a rules package. If they don't pass a rules package by January 13th, there was a letter sent last week to staffers on committees. They won't be paid. Which is amazing in and of itself. And also just the ideas we were talking a few moments ago, like, you know, normally in Washington, you kind of have an idea of where things could go. This is truly one of those moments where, you know, we have no idea what is going to happen in just a few hours from now. One thing that is happening today is George Santos is coming to Washington. Yeah. You know, he, he has been under incredible scrutiny, not just from the press, but also from prosecutors over this, like, life of fantasy that he has created. But now the New York Times is reporting that Brazilian officials are reopening a fraud investigation related to him there. What is the latest on that? Well, I think when he comes to Washington today, he is going to be questioned in a way that he is just not used to. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill, walk the halls, and reporters do too, which means he's going to face so many mounting questions. Obviously, he's facing local and federal probes as well as this one in Brazil. I think that that is certainly all going to lead to questions, not just to him, but also for leadership. What are they going to do about him? They have so far been able to sidestep those questions because lawmakers have been gone for the holidays. They all come back today and that changes. Yeah, it's like this unfettered access that reporters have to these lawmakers. A lot of questions for them, for Kevin McCarthy. Big day for you today. We'll, <laughs> stay, we'll stay in touch with you on this.
uh, back to you, Don and Poppy. All right. Yeah, listen, on top of not knowing who the speaker is going to be, Caitlin, you've but, got this guy who basically no one really knows who he is. Or do we? Can we even trust what he says yeah. he is? Right? Or his credentials, his bona fides? I mean, it's really fascinating. You're going to be. I mean, you're going to be privy to some fascinating stuff today. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. And that's the George Santos question. You know, one of the reasons people believe McCarthy has been very quiet on that is because he is trying to get these votes. And George Santos said previously he would vote for McCarthy. So it's just also amazing to see how connected all of this is. It is going to be uh, quite a chaotic day in Washington. I know we say that a lot, but this is going to be really something to watch. Dr. Yeah, Bobby. Certainly so. Caitlin is going to be back with us throughout the hours here. We'll see you in just a bit from Washington. Meantime, athletes and fans across the country sending love to Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin after he collapsed during last night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. What they're saying about the scary incident. That's next. Just shock. That's the first thing. You know, it's a football game. So you're definitely going to be in shock. Out of support, you know, for another human being. You know, right now, his family, his team, you know, his city and our city, you know, needs him to pull through. To see to see that happen, obviously, it's heartbreaking, but who cares about the game? This is a man's life. That was Buffalo Bills and Bengals fans coming together to show support for DeMar Hamlin, really the entire sports world, the entire country, really. You can see them standing outside the Cincinnati Hospital, joining hands in prayer as they await for an update on his condition after he collapsed following a tackle last night. Here uh, with us is our Harry Anton. You normally know him as our senior data analyst here. He's with us as a, a huge Bills fan team who was watching the game when this happened last night. You know everything about this team, everything about these players. What did you think? Yeah, I'm someone who made his mom buy him NFL Sunday ticket when he was 10 because I live in New York City and I wanted to watch the Bills games. And I haven't missed a game in over a decade. And last night I was on the air with Anderson and ran home to watch. Um, you know... I, personal reactions, really, for, for me, you know, uh, first off, um, my father dropped out of a, in a cardiac arrest event. And my mother was re- would retell me how that happened. It was essentially he was there one minute and gone the next. And then when I watched that and I saw him just collapse the ground, get up and collapse, I, I, there was something in me that just knew it. Like, I was like, this is really bad because it wasn't like he stayed in the ground. He got up. And that suggested something had been knocked off in his, you know, cardiac rhythm. I'm also someone who used to pitch, right? You've been talking all morning about how this is more common in baseball. And I used to wear a heart guard because I didn't think I was athletic enough to react in time if a ball came back at me. And so I understood perfectly well if they get something right at the heart at the wrong time, it could all be gone. And it's just so fortunate that they had the medical personnel there because that, I think, might have made all the difference. Well, and we need to make it clear. It is suspected that he had this, this there was a commodio cordis incident that, that caused this, but they don't know for sure now that'll be figured out. But just DeMar, uh, as a player, since you are a super fan, what did you know about him as a player? Very yeah. humble guy, wanted to pay back and help out Right, you know, his toy charity, right, trying to raise all that money online. Um, and, you know, DeMar Hamlin, someone whose name I just really learned this, this season, right, because of Bill safety, Micah Hyde, uh, who with Jordan Poyer formed one of the best dynamic duo safety tandems in the league. Micah Hyde had a neck injury and had to drop out, and DeMar Hamlin took his spot. Uh, and, you know, all the videos that we have seen um, and all the stories that we know is that DeMar Hamlin was just a decent human being. 
right? And that's really what this story is about, is decent human beings and the people, Cincinnati fans, Buffalo fans, gathering outside that hospital. The game becomes so secondary. You know, last night when it happened, I couldn't move from my couch for, for two hours. You know, normally I'm the most talkative guy in the world, and I just sat there really? in stunned silence. Uh, I, I stopped was, dinner. I had a friend who had a, a sort of celebratory dinner uh-huh. with like, it was like 12 of us or whatever. And I was like, stop. And I turned and on. Happened. Yeah. You guys have to watch this. You have to. And people were just sort of transfixed by what's happening. It, it, it stops you in your tracks. It, 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 it really does stop you in your tracks. And, you know, the other thing I'll just add is that, you know, Cincinnati and Buffalo sort of have this, you know, lock because five years ago, the Bills hadn't, I used to have a line that the Bills hadn't made the playoffs since before my bar mitzvah. Um, And Cincinnati had to win a game, beat the Baltimore Ravens for the Bills to make their first playoff appearance since 1999 back. This was back in 2017. And Cincinnati did it. And in response to that, uh, Buffalo sent a slew. uh, The fans basically raised a ton of money for Andy Dalton's charity, who was the uh, quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals at the time. And so there's this real tie between these two sort of. You know, Ohio, you know, New York are right near each other. These sort of smaller cities in these, you know, states that have larger cities. And it's just sort of this this place where football really means a lot to both of these cities. And boy, has Buffalo been through it, man. And, and, and you know, wow. Buffalo has really been through it, whether it be, you know, the shooting at the supermarket early this year, whether it blizzard. be obviously the blizzard just uh, a few, uh, was it a week ago. I, you know, yeah. I'm losing track of time. But, you know, Buffalo really lives, and I I hate, you know, and really just lives through their team, right? This is a a city that's lost a lot of population. It's a city where if you look, the ratings in Buffalo for for the Bills games are higher than pretty much any other team. And to see this happen, I I, I just, it's it's just so tragic. Speaking of what a great guy he is, I just want to play as we go to break for everyone this sound of him just a few months ago talking about his teammate, Dane Jackson, when he was injured, talking about cherishing life. So we're going to... Play this for you quickly as we go to break. I cherish it every second that I can, you know, every second of every day. We just had our prayer, our, our DB prayer we do every Wednesday mm. outside. He was next to me and I just grabbed his hand a little bit harder just because, you know, you never know when like the last day could be that you get in a experience something like this, you know, so I'm just I'm cherishing it every moment I can. Kevin McCarthy is going to be speaker but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be a straight line. It's going to take a little while and that's okay. Lawmakers are gearing up for a potentially dramatic and late day here on Capitol Hill where the 118th Congress is about to be sworn in in just a few hours from now. And among the freshman class is Washington State auto repair shop owner Marie Glusenkamp Perez. She beat the former President Trump endorsed candidate Republican Joe Kent flipping a formerly Republican-held seat in a district that voted for Trump twice to Democrats. Congresswoman-elect Marie Glusenkamp-Perez is with us now this morning. Thank you for being here. It must be remarkable for it to be your first day in Washington. You're going to be sworn in. I know a lot of your family is here. And you're watching all this drama play out on the Republican side. You know, what do you make of it all? I think drama is a great word for it. You know, I, um, I have to be honest, like, I don't think the average American paying a whole lot of attention or feels very inspired by what's going on with this chaos. Um, so it's, it's definitely interesting. But you see more of a distraction? Listen, it matters. Like having a leader that can get stuff done, that can fix things, that can work across the aisle, that is what people care about. That's what matters to normal working families like mine. Kevin's not that person. He's never going to be that person. 
who can work across the aisle and deliver. So I think it's, uh, even if folks aren't paying a whole lot of attention to it, you know, it, it, it does matter. Yeah, it, it does matter. And there's been this idea of a, a unity candidate potentially emerging if it does, you know, devolve into chaos today. And maybe there is someone that Democrats would actually come across the aisle and vote for. Is that something that you and other freshmen have discussed behind the scenes? I don't know how many folks are discussing it. I mean, there are a lot of Republicans I respect and think would do a much, much better job. Um, so, you know, I think it'll be an act of God if we can deliver a unity candidate, but it would be great for America. Which Republicans would that be? I mean, honestly, naming names at this point is probably counterproductive. Um, and it's not, I'm not in leadership. I'm not trying to be a member who's a party insider and um, spending a lot of energy thinking about leadership questions. Um, so I'm re I am very interested to see what, today will not be boring. <laughs> it will not be boring, that's safe to say. You had a fascinating win, as we were just talking about the district that you won in, it voted for Trump twice. You were up against this Trump-backed opponent. You had this appeal, though, during your campaign that looked a lot different than what other Democrats were running up on across the country, this working-class appeal. And I wonder how you are going to use that to shape your time here in Washington. Yeah, I mean, working for a living, uh, working in the trades, being a rural American, those are things that all inform the way that I look at the world and what my priorities are. And that's probably why I don't care too much about... Uh, leadership questions in this drama. It's, it's how do we make people's lives measurably better? Like my small business has been broken into four times now, just got broken again uh, into uh, a few weeks ago. Um, had, I, I had a car stolen a few weeks ago. Um, it's a really difficult time for a lot of people. And it just, so much of this leadership question feels like drama. And do you think members of your party are paying enough attention to issues like that, like crime, like the things that you've been dealing with yourself? I, I, I don't think, I, I, I think that what I've seen is that to get elected, um, to, to be in Congress takes so much money. It takes so much, um, such a, a network. I think it's really, really hard for normal people to be elected into Congress. And I feel really grateful to have had this unique set of circumstances where I was able to communicate with my district and, and um, able to put my experiences to use in a way that I think will serve my district well. And what can, what can leaders, Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill learn from that experience and from you? Well, um, I don't think it's really about me. I don't think it's about me as an individual. I think it's more about sort of the overriding principles of building a Congress that looks more like America. <clears throat> I think that the candidate selection process is fundamentally broken. You know, what people think makes it, what a lot of like, kind of political people think makes a good candidate, a lot of Americans don't agree with anymore. We don't just want like uh, single men who have a law degree. You know, we want people that fix things for a living. We want young moms. We want people that struggle to get a mortgage. And you are one of those young moms. We should <laughs> note you have a 16 month old, I know. You have a lot of family members here. Congresswoman-elect, soon to be Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining with thank us you. and sharing a really important perspective, I think, on how you're approaching Congress. Thank you. Thank Good you. Donna Poppy, of course, you know, we had the Congresswoman-elect on right after, after she won. You know, she does have this fascinating perspective of how she's approaching this Congress compared to other lawmakers who have been here before. This is her first term. 
And uh, it, it does speak to, we are talking about this Republican majority, Don, that we're going to have today, but it also speaks to the Democrats who are new in town as well. Yeah. Caitlin, thank you. We'll see you a little bit later on from Washington, D.C. In the meantime, tennis great Martina Navratilova, diagnosed with throat and breast cancer. We're going to talk about how rare it is to receive two diagnoses at once, plus this. We're going to definitely look this guy uh, uh, and look him in his eyes. He's, he's going to have to deal with this, and he has been dealing with this for seven weeks. It's, it's not about to end. The father of one of the murdered Idaho college students ready to face a suspect in court when he's expected to be sent back to Idaho. That's coming up. Happening today, the suspect in the killing of four Idaho college students is scheduled to appear in court in Pennsylvania. That is 28-year-old Brian Koberger. He is facing first-degree murder charges and has, is expected to waive extradition. Uh, that will expedite his return to Idaho, where the murders, where the murders took place in November. Gene Casares joins us live outside uh, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, again this morning. Gene, what, what happened today? Walk us through this. Well, it's a simple procedure. We're right here at the Court of Common Pleas in Stroudsburg, and this is where it will all take place. And, and really, legally speaking, an extradition proceeding is where the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has to allow someone that is within their borders to go to another state to face criminal charges. And it's constitutionally, it's important. It's important that the judge see the defendant so he can voluntarily show that he is agreeing to do that. Now, here's what's interesting, because normally when you have any type of proceeding with a criminal defendant uh, at a courthouse, there's sometimes an underground garage that they drive through to park and get him in the courthouse so nobody sees him, or there's an underground tunnel between the jail and the courthouse. They don't have that here. So they are going to have to take him from the correction facility and really just bring him to one of the entrances here. Now, what we're understanding is that may, they may drape the entrance so the public cannot see him as he gets out of the car and walks in. However, the judge is allowing pool cameras to be right there in the hallway next to the courtroom. So we, and I mean all of us, we are going to get to see this person who is now accused of killing, murdering four young college students. Also want to say that Steve Goncalves um, was on our air yesterday and he talked about this and he is going to be at every hearing in Idaho mm -hmm. and he says he's going to look him in the eye and he's going to have to deal with us. And today that process begins right here. Pat, Poppy. It does. We appreciate you and your team being on the ground, Gene. Thank you. Yeah. We want to talk now about tennis great Martina Navratilova. She says that she will fight with all that she's got <laughs> after being diagnosed with breast and throat cancer. Navratilova says doctors discovered an enlarged lymph node in her neck last year and a biopsy revealed it was stage one throat cancer. While undergoing tests, doctors also found a cancerous site, also stage one, in her breasts. Now, she had previously battled breast cancer in 2010. This is a statement. Martina Navratilova says, this double whammy is serious but still fixable. I am hoping for a favorable outcome, and so are we hoping for that. So listen, let's uh, bring in now Professor of Oncology at Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Otis Brawley. Doctor, good morning to you. Thank you so much. This is what the, the um, studies show, that 2 in 17 people, a percent of people, I should say, um, with cancer find have these multiple diagnoses. Is this so rare? But it does happen. 
Uh, good morning. Uh, yes, this does happen. You know, about 40 percent of us will ultimately get cancer and uh, it's uh, 15 to 17 percent will have two cancers. It's not common for it to happen at the same time, but it does happen that people are diagnosed with two cancers at the same time. Does it complicate treatment for her? It complicates treatment only a bit. Uh, we are actually taught that we should treat the patient as if they have treat each cancer separately and mm. do what treatments you need to do for each cancer. Uh, so the people who treat her throat cancer are going to have to talk to and coordinate with the people who treat her breast cancer. Uh, but people can do very well with two low-stage uh, cancers like this. She has been up. She has an upbeat attitude. I read the statement, which she said that she, you know, this is she believes it's fixable. But as I also said, she dealt with this in 2010. I want to play her talking about her diagnosis and her prognosis, as a matter of fact, as well in 2010. Here it is. It was a shock to my system, but as an athlete, as a tennis player, we, we are positive, we have to be, and we get in the solution. So as shocking as the news was to me, it really knocked me on my butt, literally. Uh, but I said, okay, what do we need to do? I cried for about 30 seconds, and then I got over it. So, okay, what do we do? How do we get in the solution? Listen, it's great. I'm sure you need to have a, a great mental attitude, a good upbeat attitude about it. But, I mean, what does it say that, you know, about what happened with her cancer then and now, doctor? You know, she showed tremendous courage and grace there. And uh, let's hope that she has uh, the same very positive outcome this time. It is indeed possible. By the way, uh, it is common that women who have breast cancer might get a second breast cancer 10 or 15 years later. Mm. There you go. Thank you, Dr. Otis Brawley. We appreciate it. We're all rooting for her. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. A farewell fit for a king. Brazil mourning the legendary soccer star Pele. And the latest on the Buffalo Bills player, Damar Hamlin, who suffered a cardiac arrest and is in critical condition after collapsing on the field last night. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta is gonna join us straight ahead. Well, this morning, thousands of mourners from all around the world are paying their final respects to the king. Soccer legend Pele, both celebrities and fans, flocking to the stadium of his former football club for the 24-hour public wake. Many people dressed in the iconic Brazil and Santos football club jerseys. Some were overcome with emotion as they said goodbye to the king of football. We're joined again this morning by our Julia Vargas-Jones live in Brazil. The president arriving as well, the newly elected president. What a day. Yeah, Poppy, 150,000 people have already gone through the stadium behind me. The, the people that you see behind me here, though, they tell me they are here to see the president. They want to get catch a glimpse of the newly inaugurated Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. He's expected to arrive here any second now. I think it might be happening. Uh, but. But Pelé is still inside the stadium, his casket laying in the center of the field in the stadium. Soon after Lula pays his respects, he will be taken in a procession through the city of Santos, going through, passing in front of the house of his mother, who is still alive, still with us at 100 years old, and eventually 
Pele's casket will be taken to a cemetery not far from here at Poppy on the ninth floor of the tallest cemetery in the world. The king of soccer will be laid to rest overlooking the stadium where he built his legacy, where he started making soccer into an art form and changing the sport for the rest of the world. Yeah. The king indeed. Julia uh, Vargas-Jones, thank you for being there as we wait the arrival of the president of Brazil. Yeah, we'll Huge see. day. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. America right now is concerned about one thing, the health and safety of this young man. And, and I think um, we need to go ahead and make that call. Stop speculating. Everybody's sweeting about it. Call the game. Let's NFL go ahead and call this game and let's move on. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Don Lemon with Poppy Harlow here. Caitlin is live in Washington, D.C. Uh, the start of the new Congress. We'll get to that. But the big story this morning oh, yeah. is what happened on the football field last night. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin suffering a cardiac arrest and collapsing on the football field. Just 24 years old, now in the hospital. He is in critical condition. We'll get you updates on that, of course. Also, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's bid to be speaker plagued with uncertainty still this morning. The concessions he has made may not be enough to win him the support he needs to become speaker, if you can believe it. Caitlin. Yeah, and once the new Congress is sworn in, you know, the Republican majority in the House is promising a wave of investigations. Partisan gridlock could stall President Biden's agenda. There are big questions about what that will look like as well. Mm -hmm. But our big story this morning, we're going to start with Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin, hospitalized in critical condition after collapsing and suffering cardiac arrest on the field Monday night. This is what we know at this hour. It happened in the first quarter after Hamlin tackled Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins. Hamlin got up and then moments later collapsed on his back. Within seconds, the Bills medical staff was treating him. Less than five minutes later, an ambulance was brought onto the field. The Bills say Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest and his heartbeat was restored on the field. Players on both teams were overcome with emotion, consoling each other and praying for Hamlin. At 9.18, the game was temporarily suspended with the teams going back to their locker rooms to gather themselves. At 9.25, the ambulance left the stadium, taking Hamlin to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center for further testing and treatment. And at 10.01 p.m., just over an hour after Hamlin's medical emergency, the NFL announced the game was postponed. So joining us now, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Good morning, doctor. What's your reaction to this and the possibility? We don't know for sure that it's this commodio cordis. Well, it's, it's very emotional to watch. First of all, you know, I was at the hospital yesterday and everyone was, was talking about this. And uh, that was the suspicion at that time that somehow he had suffered some sort of cardiac arrest uh, on the field and that it was due to this sudden blow to the chest, uh, commodio cordis, uh, as it's called, which is a really rare situation. I mean, this is something that you hear about maybe a couple of dozen times a year, and not typically in, in football, but more, as you see there on the screen, sports like baseball, where you get a small projectile uh, that travels at a high rate of speed, hits the chest at the right spot, 
um, at the at the wrong time, essentially, and causes the heart to to go into this abnormal heart rhythm here. I'll just show you on a model here. It's it's you, you think about the chest wall and then the and the projectile or or the blow coming to the heart at that exact time when the heart is beating in a very particular way. Um, and that causes the heart to go into this abnormal heart rhythm known as ventricular fibrillation. Uh, what would have, that, and that wasn't known at the time, obviously. We, they didn't know what was happening to him. A lot of times you suspect, and I'm a brain guy, but you suspect the brain or a spinal cord injury. Uh, but given that he had stood up and he was standing up for a little bit before he staggered and fell back, it made a spinal cord uh, injury less likely and a cardiac arrest more likely. What we learned overnight from Adrian and others reporting is that in fact it was cardiac arrest and also critically important that they were able to start restart his heart on the field. We couldn't, we couldn't tell that uh, last night. Uh, we know that they had started CPR. The goal of CPR is to essentially take over what the heart should be doing. Mm -hmm. The heart should be pumping oxygenated blood throughout the body, it's not doing that. So essentially through your own hands, you're forcing the heart to essentially pump that blood, the chambers, and pump that oxygenated blood throughout the body. But the goal is to restart the heart, and it sounds like that they were able to do that on the field, most likely with a defibrillator, applying electricity to the heart to restart that. Mm -hmm. And then also we learned from Adrian, I believe she said earlier, that uh, he continues to be in critical condition, which we knew, but stabilized overnight, which is uh, obviously important. So hoping for updates. What I've just described is a rare situation again. I, I had actually never seen it uh, happen, certainly not you know, uh, a film the way that it was, you know, for, for frankly the world to see, but that seems like the most likely scenario here. Well, doctor, just a quick follow. So instead of a pump or a beat, it's, the heart starts to flutter, right? And, and yeah. in a sort of an erratic way. Am I correct with that? Yeah, so the heart has typically got a very coordinated beating pattern. It's four chambers in the heart, the blood is moving through these chambers, eventually is pushed out through the heart and goes to the rest of the body. Oxygenated blood is, is coursing through the body. The heart is quivering or fibrillating, right? Instead of a nice beat like this, which we all can sort of think of and imagine that heartbeat, and starts to go like this, and that's an inefficient sort of beating. It's still moving, but it's essentially not accomplishing anything. It's not actually moving oxygenated blood throughout the body. That's what you're trying to address. That's what you're trying to restore when you apply electricity to the heart, for example, and get that heart rhythm back to normal. You, I mean, you did give us, doctor, some good news in terms of the heart being restarted on the field, a little bit of stabilization yeah. overnight at the hospital. Why don't you, if you could, walk us through exactly what we see in this video. So people waking up to this can try to get their head around it. Sure. So if, if, you, if you watch the video, um, it, it probably doesn't look immediately like that significant a, a tackle or a blow. But what I'm looking for specifically is you see the right shoulder there of the player go into the chest. Is that right shoulder pad essentially acting as a, as a projectile like I showed in that baseball graphic? Is that the sort of moment of impact where basically you hit the heart and essentially um, cause that abnormal heart rhythm to begin, this ventricular fibrillation? Again, when I say it's rare, I'm saying maybe a couple of dozen times a year that this happens, mm -hmm. and it's because the, right, the, the exact spot at the exact time I mean, the heart's beating constantly, right? So to get it at the exact time when you could cause this sort of abnorm abnormality of the heart rhythm, uh, it, again, doesn't happen very often, but that seems to be what happens there. He, he 
he goes to the ground. Again, that does not look like a significant event there. I'm looking for the fact that he then stands up after mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. stands mm-hmm. up, which to, is really important. Again, as a, as a neurosurgeon, brain surgeon, I'm thinking, is there a brain injury? Is there a spinal cord injury? Does not appear to be at that point. But at this point, as you're watching, he, when he collapses backwards, the heart rhythm is now uh, abnormal and he's not pushing oxygenated blood through the body, including the brain. It's gonna cause, render someone unconscious, uh, obviously, and that's what causes him to fall to the ground. So as we're watching at home, doctor, listen, it was, um, you know, he had medical staff there on the field, right? Not everybody has a medical staff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Poppy and I were talking, and, and a lot of folks, I'm sure people at home are wondering, it's, you know, giving CPR, you have to be trained in giving CPR. But then having a, a yes. defibrillator on hand, right, is extremely helpful, as we were talking to a doctor in the previous hour. Should folks have yep. home defibrillators? And should they have defibrillators at our... You know, fingertips. I, I think I think all all large venues certainly should have defibrillators, and I imagine even aside from the ambulance, which clearly would have a defibrillator, uh, these venues should have defibrillators. I think people at home, if they're if they're certainly if they're at risk for for this sort of thing, and I want to be careful. This is not a common occurrence what we've seen here, but if someone is at risk of cardiac arrest at home, a defibrillator is the way, the most uh, the most. Um, uh, efficient way to restart the heart, to restore that normal rhythm. I will say though, you know, everyone can learn CPR. I mean, I think, I, I don't know what the percentage is now, but uh, there's a significant percentage of people who've never gone through any sort of CPR training. Anybody could be a person who can administer CPR in this sort of situation. Call 911 first. Obviously, this is a football field, so it's a different scenario. But if you witness a cardiac arrest, call 911 first mm-hmm. and learn CPR and, and administer yeah. that CPR. But yeah, I think defibrillators, having them more ubiquitous, uh, you know, more widely available is really important. Again, last night, we weren't even sure that he had defibrillation actually performed on the field. I assumed that he did, but we couldn't see anything, right? Yeah. Everyone was around him. But I think when those electric shocks are applied, that's, that's really the key. And every minute that goes by without restoring the heart, um, there's an additional 10% increase in mortality. So, you know, you, time is, is critical here. Sanjay, before you go, how many times have we had you on about really serious football injuries, concussions, paralysis, now this? You've said we can make the game, they can make the game safer. But I think this morning the question is, can you make the game actually safe? That's gotta be what every parent's waking up to this morning. Right, I, that, that is the question and the answer is no. I don't think you can make it safe. I mean, it's a, it's a brutal game. Uh, again, most of the discussion has been around CTE. We've done a lot of reporting on that, documentary films, all that. Um, but, uh, you know, even with something like this, you get a sense of just how brutal, how violent, violent the game can be. I think there's been a lot of things that have been done to make the game safer over the last 15, 20 years. But um, safe? I mean, I, I think the answer to that is, is definitively no. Doctor, thank you. We appreciate having you on. Thank you so much for that. You know, it is important not to lose sight of DeMar Hamlin the man the in this situation, the human being. Here he is, this is just a couple weeks ago, posing for pictures with kids and signing autographs at his toy drive event. This was in Buffalo. He started a GoFundMe back in 2020 uh, to help purchase toys for kids in need. Watch this. Something I've always been into, just giving back. Something I've been doing back at home in Pittsburgh um, for three years. I've been doing the toy drive. So just being able to extend it to Buffalo now is just something I, I love doing. 
So we want to tell you that donations uh, to Hamlin's GoFundMe have been pouring in following his on-field collapse. The original goal was $2,500. So far, it has raised more than $3.2 million. Nearly 125,000 people have donated. Let's talk about this more with Bomani Jones, host of the HBO and HBO Max show Game Theory with Bomani Jones, host of the podcast The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Good morning. Thank you for being here. What are your Good morning. I saw you shaking your head when the Poppy's question, can you make it safer or safe? And you said, oh, no, I mean, it's like trying to make a safe cigarette. That's just not really how this works, how this game works. And part of why people watch is the fact that it's not safe. Like, that's an element to the drama of this, is that the idea of the sacrifice and everything that has to put in, that's part of what draws people into this. And so we feel guilty when we see things like this. So we always try to come around and find a way to be like, man, you think they could find a way to make this safe? No, they can't. That's just not what this game is or what it's ever going to be. What's your reaction when you saw what happened last night? Well, what happened for me was interesting because I kind of missed it. And then once I saw that they were talking in somber tones and doing the solemn replay, I was like, oh, I don't need to watch this. But my thought was that it was like a spinal injury. That's something that you see often happen in football. After they came back from a couple of commercial breaks and then said that they were administering CPR, I called one of my colleagues and said, did we watch somebody die? Because that was like it was so clear from the way they were treating it, that it was that grave and that dire. And then I was like, well, they're, they're going to play football. Well, we didn't know. For money, we did not know. Because I kept saying, is he, what, is he still alive? Like, no. what is happening? Like, we did not know. No, I just watched enough of these to recognize that something was very different. And the fact that Joe Buck couldn't even figure out what to say. And then it's 10 minutes later and they're talking about CPR. And that was, for me, the moment that it became really terrifying yeah. about what exactly was going on. This is what you said uh, last night. You tweeted this. You said, I hope the players know that they really don't have to play if they don't want to. In this moment, nobody... Um, can make them play nobody. Uh, you were concerned about what would happen. I, I thought just from watching that they wanted to play. I think that I think the players really had a huge influence in this. I think they probably said, I don't want to go back out there and play at this. I point. think that's exactly what happened. And to be fair to the NFL, because I think it's easy to point to the cruelty of the show must go on. That show never stops. We've watched people be paralyzed and they get them off the field and then they go. My colleague Dominique Foxworth talks about being in college and a guy being paralyzed at practice and they just move down to the next field and then they kept on going. Like this game doesn't stop because if you stop for something catastrophic, you probably wouldn't be able to play that much football. They'd be stopping all the time. And so when I looked up and I saw those dudes warming up, getting ready to go out there and then they announced that it was five minutes, I was appalled by it. But then I realized, that's just what they do there. They're like, okay, the field is clear. We're going. Okay, five minutes. We're back out there because they never stopped for anything. And I was glad when the coaches got to midfield and it seemed very clear that they looked at their mm -hmm. sidelines and they said, they ain't about to be a game. Yeah. Whether we want there to be or not, these dudes can't play. And I was fearful that they would feel the pressure to go out there because if they wanted to play, it wouldn't be for me to judge if they did. But for them to look around, and you could just tell, yep. these are 24, 25-year-old dudes, man. They did not have it in them. They think they just saw the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then you ask them to go out there and do the same thing that that dude was doing when that happened? It wasn't going to happen. And when do you see people, I mean, you rarely see, the, especially athletes, big dudes crying on the field, live television, and embracing and hugging each other because, I mean, you knew something, you know, was awful and different, as they say. Yeah, you don't see, like, when does the Wall Street Journal have this on the above the fold, right. right? Like a financial paper, and you see them just in agony for their teammate not knowing the answers. 
Um, Coy Wire, who played for the Bills, our colleague, said last hour, this, because the NFL canceled the game, they didn't play signals, what he called, I think, a paradigm shift in the league. What do you think? I don't know about that. And the reason I say that is, if Hamlet had been paralyzed, this game goes on. Like, if he leaves the stadium and everybody felt confident that he was going to live, or at the very least that this wasn't dire in that moment, that game probably would have gone on. What I think happened was an outlier event that we haven't seen before. We have not seen a situation that scared people so much in that moment right then and there. I would think it was a paradigm shift, perhaps, if it was something lesser. I think where you could maybe say there was a paradigm shift is in the attitudes of the players, right? Like, And we've seen that with concussions, for example, where you have guys now far more likely to say, hey, I'm not going to play, or have their teammates be like, hey, so this guy's not going to play. What does that tell you, that shift in the players? That we're raising a generation that is far more aware of the risk and consequences of playing football, yeah. right? And they, I think that players and the people around the game think about this a little bit more than they used to. Because if you think about the sort of plays that we watched 20 years ago, the things that got people out of their seats, the things that were part of highlight packages, those have changed. But this isn't one of those plays. Like, this isn't one of those where you thought some dude got his head knocked off. This was one of those where you're like, oh, that didn't seem so bad until he stands up for three seconds and then he falls down. Like, I think that this was so jarring and so outside of what we're accustomed to seeing in football that he generated response unlike anything mm-hmm. we've seen. Yeah. So then what... What are the considerations before rescheduling? Before I play that, let me let me play. Before you do that, respond. This is player Ron Clark. Yeah, this is great. The former NFL player Ron Clark made an, making this impassioned plea for the NFL to consider the players before rescheduling the game. And then I'll get your take on this. I know the NFL. The NFL is a big business, and the NFL has to continue doing business, and the NFL has to continue entertaining. But if the NFL doesn't send somebody into these locker rooms, if the NFL isn't flying people to Cincinnati right now or to Buffalo or wherever they're going right now, they are missing the point. The point is make sure these men are all right, and then you can play football. Because what I'm going to tell you is if you put them out there tomorrow, you're going to get a trash game anyway because you've said it 20 times tonight. What's important is DeMar Hamlin. Ryan Clark, I said, I think, I thought I said Ron, but what do you think? I don't think this game is going to be played because I don't think logistically it's really going to be possible for this to be played. Like, you can't decide, okay, we're going to play the game on Wednesday and then ask these dudes to come out here and play again on Sunday just because of the physical wear and tear that the game takes. There's no reason to play this game. Like, if you want to be cold and cynical about it, I watched what happened after they suspended that game. They ran all those ads. Everybody got their money. Those tickets were sold, right? Like, this this isn't a matter of we need to recruit this for financial reasons. And honestly, the consequences of the standings, you'll figure that out. They don't have to play this game, and I don't think they will play this game. Because what are we going to do? Tune in to watch this game and think about the fact that we thought we watched somebody die all game long? Like, this, it's not a win for anybody. And I think the league is going to have to look up and recognize there's nothing left for them to do with this game. They need to ask themselves whether or not these two teams are going to be able to play the game they have scheduled on Sunday. Because we're like, hey, okay, well, maybe they can get out here and play tomorrow. I don't know about you, but if my coworker has something like that happen to me dead in front of me, I'm not promising you won't come into work for the rest of the week. Yeah. Well, not dead at this point, but yeah. Yeah, but, say, but, but that's, that's why I said Let's what go. happened. What happened. Like, I want to yeah. be very clear about that. What right. happened. Right. What happened. Should be up to the players. <sighs> yeah. No, no. To those it players. Is, that's the yes. thing. It is up to the yep. players. If they decide there ain't going to be no game, you can't go out on yep. the street and throw people in Buffalo Bills suits and get them out here. If they don't want to play, it's yep. not going to be a game. And I hope the union and everybody else is telling every single one of those dudes, 
You have the power right now to decide yeah. if this show goes on. Bomani, thank you. Thank you. So good to have you this morning. I guess, you know, we can um, consider this as a sort of, as we say in television or in television news, a split screen day because there are two huge things yes. going on. You've got what happened with the NFL last night. And, of course, you have this chaotic um, change, uh, the changing of the guard in Washington, D.C. that Caitlin is covering this morning. Yeah, I love hearing Bamani's perspective on that, too, uh, on this moment, because what he said is what so many people, I think, was their reaction to what happened last night. Yes, we are here in Washington also this morning because we're covering two major stories. It is just hours from now before Republicans are going to take control of the House. But as this is going on, 7 a.m. this morning, McCarthy is still struggling to get the votes that he needs to become House Speaker. They're supposed to vote in just a few hours. We'll tell you what happens if he falls short, though. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I'm Caitlin Collins, live on Capitol Hill this morning, where just hours from now, Republicans are set to assume control of the House of Representatives. But the first task ahead of them is voting for Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy this morning is still struggling to get the 218 votes that he needs in his bid for the speakership. If McCarthy doesn't get that support, it is going to be historic. Joining us now to break all of this down is CNN's senior political analyst and anchor, John Avalon. John, you know the chaos in Washington just as well as I do. And this will be historic if McCarthy is not actually able to get the votes that he needs today. The first time it all have happened in nearly a century. What do you what is your expectation about essentially what happens if he doesn't get the votes that he needs? Well, first, let's let's offer some perspective because people are saying, you know, why does the speaker matter? What's this fight about? OK, first of all, it's not only the man of rules, the House of Representatives, it's third in line for the presidency. So this is a high stakes position. There have been 54 of them in our history, 53 men, one woman, Nancy Pelosi. There's been a speaker of the House since 1789, the first Congress, President George Washington here in New York. But you asked, what happens? Has this ever happened before? Floor fight. Not in a hundred years, right? This has only happened one time since the Civil War. So you got to go back to 1923. This cat, Fred Gillette, fun looking guy, nice tailor. He had to go through nine rounds of balloting because he had a rebellion from progressive Republicans at the time. And nothing like this, what we're expecting to see today has happened since then, a hundred years from now. And what about the last time with Republican speakers? Because, of, yeah, I don't think a lot of people will really remember what happened in 1923, but obviously John Boehner, Paul Ryan are very familiar names to our audience. That's right. And this is just a reminder that this is a tough job, and it seems to be getting tougher, particularly for Republicans. You mentioned John Boehner, Paul Ryan. The last two Republican speakers, they quit their positions, right? And these are broadly respected guys. Paul Ryan, quintessential policy wonk. John Boehner, the deal maker. But they were constantly corralling the cats in their caucus. And one quote from John Boehner really hammers home the problem that uh, Kevin McCarthy seems to be facing. Boehner wrote in his memoir, under the new rules of crazy town, I may have been speaker, but I didn't hold the power. The chaos caucus in the House had built up their own power base thanks to fawning right-wing media and outrage-driven fundraising cash. So it's a reminder, the fight that Kevin McCarthy seems to be facing today has been brewing for a long time, but it seems to be getting worse. Yeah, and that quote, I may have been the speaker, but I didn't hold the power, that could be Kevin McCarthy, given the concessions that he has made to those who still are standing in the way of this. John Avalon, thank you for breaking it down. We will obviously stay tuned 
82 new members are set to take the oath of office. When the 118th Congress begins today, this freshman class includes a record number of women and more diversity. CNN's Jessica Dean joins us now. We were talking with the congresswoman-elect from Washington's 3rd District a few moments ago, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez. She's a young mom. She came from this auto body repair shop that she owns, and she was saying that she thinks Congress needs to look more like that, more young moms, more people who struggle to get a mortgage to pay a mortgage. Uh, tell us what this new Congress is going to look like. Right. Well, it's going to be the more, most diverse Congress we've ever seen, Caitlin, and we forget that these are just people. You know, there's a lot of drama playing out uh, with the speaker's race. But the fact of the matter is these new members have to organize new offices, figure out what this means for their family, find a place to live. And a lot of them are single moms or they're leaving behind a job. So we talked to a couple of them to see what their experience had been like. For freshman members of Congress, January 3rd feels a little like the first day of school. I'm definitely nervous. <laughs> you know, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a big wait. You know, I do not take lightly, I don't take lightly, right, that I'm going to Congress. I think, wow, it's happening. This is real and uh, we're about to enter a new phase in life. This freshman group of lawmakers will be historically diverse, with record-setting numbers of women, Latino members, and members who identify as LGBTQ. According to the Washington Post, this will be the youngest group of incoming House members in the last seven freshman classes, with an average age of 46. That's Do you a lot think of, you'll come back a lot every of, weekend? I think that I'm going to come back as often as is practical. Yeah. At 35 years old, Democrat Summer Lee is the first black woman to ever represent Pennsylvania. I'm honored to serve as people who come from a working class background, from a black community, you know, from public school systems with my accent. You know, I want that to come through. I want to be able to be me so that people who are now thinking about whether they should ever run know that they don't have to change who they are to be in this place. A record-breaking 149 women will serve in the House or Senate, and that includes 42 Republicans, another first. Monica De La Cruz is the first Republican and first woman to represent the 15th District of Texas. It's really a humbling thought for me, and I just feel like I represent the American dream. Since the moment they won, both women say it's been a flurry of logistics, hiring and planning as they prepare for their new lives. There's the question of where they'll live. Lee found a roommate and fellow incoming Illinois Congresswoman Delia Ramirez. We kind of both just were like, can you afford to live alone? <laughs> right. So it was like an immediately um, an immediate connection on that one. Dela Cruz, a single mom to two teenagers, has yet to find a place in Washington, D.C. Probably be sleeping in my office the first couple of months until I get better oriented with the city. The list of to-dos continues to be long, from hiring staff. Trying to find the right people that had the same vision that I had, that uh, hopefully were from the district, that might be bilingual on top of that. To learning how to get in the building. The reality is, is that we actually have to learn. You know, there's so much that we have to learn. They're also both women in public office. And they know what they wear and how they present themselves will be scrutinized. It is a different level of consideration, not even just between men and women, but for black women, mm. right? For, as black women, you know, we have different considerations for our hair. Mm -hmm. What is acceptable for our hair? How are we presenting ourselves? All of the considerations, the excitement, and even freshman nerves, part of the experience as they begin their new jobs. We're leaving behind a life that we've known for the last 20 years and going into a new life. And 
it's not just myself as the congresswoman, it's my children too, who are also going into this new chapter of their life. So I think it's exciting, but it can be overwhelming at moments too. It can be overwhelming to start a new job, a new life, a new city. And that's certainly what these freshman lawmakers are going through. And Caitlin, we were talking while that piece was airing. A lot of people think they just show up, they know where to go, they have all this staff around them, and they do have bigger staffs uh, than perhaps if they were serving in the state legislature. Yeah. But look, they don't even know you've walked through this building. It, it, like, you get lost. It's a huge, giant complex, and just getting in the door can be an ordeal. So. I lived in Washington for eight and a half years, and I got lost coming in this morning. So right. it, it's a struggle, but it is. it does speak to, you know, what Marie Glissenkamp-Perez is telling us earlier, the congresswoman-elect, you know, for normal people who, who don't have a, a ton of money behind right. them to come and find housing here, it's expensive to live in Washington. It's a really good look at, at what these members go through. Totally, yeah. yeah. Just normal team. people doing this kind of extraordinary job. Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. Also today, you know, when the new Congress is sworn in, as Republicans are, they have a majority, it's a slim majority, but they are taking control of the House today. But there are questions about their efforts to stall President Biden's agenda, what that looks like for the next two years. White House officials have been careful not to comment at length on the GOP speaker's vote and the drama that you've seen there. But they say they are concerned about potential new rules by Republican hardliners who may try to make it difficult to strike bipartisan deals. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House this morning. MJ, tell us what's at stake. Lay it out, really, of what's at stake for the White House as they're watching this drama today. Well, Caitlin, you're certainly right that we are not going to be hearing White House officials sort of commenting on the ins and outs of the speaker's race. But of course, they're going to be watching everything that unfolds today with so much interest because it is going to be hugely consequential. And not just the question of whether the speaker is going to be Kevin McCarthy or somebody else, but what kinds of concessions the ultimate House speaker will have made to some of these GOP hardliners in the House. Uh, we know that the White House in the past has made the distinction between Senate Republicans and House Republicans, basically saying, you know, these Senate Republicans can be reasonable. They can work across the aisle with Democrats, whereas House Republicans, White House officials have talked about as being sort of captive to these hardliners and basically uninterested in working with Democrats. So, yeah, there is a world where if these members are even more emboldened and have powerful chairmanship positions, yeah, it gets a little bit more difficult and more complicated for things to get done on Capitol Hill. But do they see any advantage in, you know, what's expected to be basically pure chaos today as Republicans themselves tell you they don't know what's going to happen today? Does the White House see an advantage in that? Well, you know, in some ways you could argue that it isn't the worst thing for Democrats, this White House, uh, for House Republicans to basically be paralyzed, right? They can't do basic functions, uh, start their business until there is a speaker. So one thing, for example, that they can't do is launch these House investigations, which House Republicans have said is one major way in which they are going to go on the offensive against the Biden White House. Uh, I think the White House strategy, if there has been one, is really just to sit back and watch all of this unfold uh, quietly all of this fighting and this drama. I mean, think about the fact that tomorrow we're going to see the president standing next to Mitch McConnell at an economy and infrastructure event. Uh, and who knows what the other side of the split screen is going to be with House Republicans. They sort of just want to show, yeah, President Biden is more the adult in the room. Yeah, notable how Biden said yesterday he didn't think there was really anything to all the fuss about him going to appear alongside Mitch McConnell. MJ Lee, thank right. you for that report. 
Ahead, we're going to talk to incoming Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler and GOP Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick on the drama surrounding Kevin McCarthy's bid to be the next speaker. John and Poppy, it is quite a, a moment playing out here on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Did you ever expect that we... We knew you'd be anchoring from there today. We knew you had these great lawmakers lined up. But did you ever think you'd be at the 11th hour and no one knows what happens to Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> I think if you've been the last few weeks talking to Republicans, it's not a huge surprise. I was yeah. talking to some of them yesterday and they were saying they genuinely do not know what's going to happen. Kevin McCarthy was working the phones last night. They have having meetings in his office here. It's that speaker's office, but he may not remain in that speaker's office if he can't get those 218 votes. Well, he moved the boxes. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think that's sort of uh, traditional that you do that, but we'll see. Yeah. I think, look, I've saw, you saw the lawmaker earlier saying he thinks it's going to be, it's going to take a, more than one round, but Kevin McCarthy will eventually become the Speaker of the House. But it's just interesting to see all the drama that's playing out around it, Caitlin. It's going to cover it. Yeah, back to very, very soon, Caitlin. Okay, let's talk about really severe thunderstorms this morning. The South is bracing for them. So ahead, we're going to take you to Louisiana, where they saw some very severe weather overnight. And next, what we're learning about actor Jeremy Rimmer's, Renner, I should say, his injuries and the recovery that's happening for him this morning after a snowplow accident. Well, this morning, actor Jeremy Renner is recovering from a second surgery for blunt chest trauma and orthopedic injuries after a snowplowing accident near his Nevada home on Sunday. A spokesman says he remains in critical but stable condition, and people are clinging to hope for the stable part of that. Since Chloe Milas joins us now, uh, good morning. What you, good morning. What are you learning? Listen, so it has been a very touch-and-go situation for Jeremy Renner, for his family. Um, he's been in the ICU since Sunday after he was airlifted from his Lake Tahoe area home near Reno, Nevada. He underwent one surgery, the second yesterday evening. Right after the surgery, his team releasing a statement saying that it was more than just a leg injury that was first reported by multiple outlets, that his injuries are extensive. And so we don't know exactly what happened. But if you take a look at his Instagram, you know that he's used to operating these snow plows and this heavy machinery. But he's lucky to be alive. Is that what he was operating, what our viewers are seeing? Something we don't know which that? one exactly, but something similar to that one right wow. there. Okay. I don't know the official names for these, but we do know that, you know, he's been posting these kinds of videos since 2018, 2019, and these injuries are incredibly significant. Um, I've been talking to different individuals who are trying to tell me what might have happened because he is skilled on these. And there was really bad visibility in the area. A portion of the highway that he was on was closed the evening before. There was unprecedented snowfall, um, and especially around the Reno area. So again, our thoughts are going out to him. He has a long road to recovery. Social media was the number one trending topic yesterday. People are just flooding. There's so much support for him and wanting more information. He's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. thinking you. about him. Thank Thanks, you, Chloe. Chloe. Okay, ahead this morning, obviously, we're following very closely the latest on uh, Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin's condition after he suffered uh, what is believed to be cardiac arrest during last night's game. We'll take you to the hospital where he's being treated. Caitlin. And back here on Capitol Hill, we are just a few hours away from a new Congress beginning. I'll be joined by Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler to talk about all of this and, of course, what is going to be that critically important vote on the House Speaker.
Big, big day in Washington. A roll call vote to elect a speaker will be the first major order of business for this 118th Congress. The speaker serves as the House chamber's political and parliamentary leader and is second in line to the presidency. The thing is, Congress can't really function unless there's a speaker. I now call the House to order on behalf of all of America's children. That was former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So how is this going to go today? So this is what happens. The clerk will call a roll call vote and each member will state the name of the person they're voting for. Here's how it ended last time. Therefore, the Honorable Nancy Pelosi of the state of California, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House. But if Kevin McCarthy today fails to secure a majority on that first vote, there will be a second vote and maybe a third and a fourth and a fifth and on and on. We'll see now it is unclear if Congress will go into recess. But if lawmakers don't move to adjourn, they will have to just keep voting until a winner, a speaker is declared and the gavel is handed over. And to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, I extend to you this gavel. Thank you. Bobby, you know, as for weeks, McCarthy's allies here on Capitol Hill have voiced confidence that he eventually is going to get to that 218 vote threshold. Well, listen, a month is a long time in politics, uh, but I am confident that Kevin McCarthy will have uh, 218 votes uh, on January 3rd to become speaker. It has now been a month, so joining us is that Republican congressman-elect, Mike Lawler of New York, who is going to be sworn into Congress in just a few hours. Thanks for joining us Thank this you. morning. You know, that was December 3rd, I think. Now here we are, January 3rd. McCarthy does not have the votes right now. Are you still confident that he's going to get there? Yes, absolutely. You know, he has the overwhelming support of a majority of the conference. When we had our conference elections back in November, he received 85% of the vote. Uh, he has earned the right to be the Speaker of the House. And uh, the conference is not going to let a few members uh, hold the rest of us hostage here. And ultimately, I do believe he will have uh, the requisite number of votes to become Speaker. And, you know, this is not about any one of us individually. And it's certainly not about the rules of the House. This is about the American people. And we got elected to do a job. And we have to govern. And so ultimately, uh, I do believe cooler heads will prevail, and I do believe he will become Speaker of the House. What is his plan? I know you were with him last night. You were talking to him. He was making calls and meeting with some of these hardliners who have said they're not voting for him. What's his plan for today? He's not backing down. And whether it takes one vote or 100 votes, uh, we're going to keep going until uh, we elect a Speaker. And uh, I am fully committed to that. Uh, you cannot allow five or nine people within a conference of 222 uh, to dictate to everybody else. The overwhelming majority of people uh, support Kevin McCarthy. And so uh, it is untenable uh, to allow a handful of people uh, to try and overrun the conference and the will of the majority of the conference. Is his plan to stay on the floor? Absolutely. When you talk about that handful of people, Scott Perry is someone who just a few moments ago was talking about the prospects of where these votes stand, where Kevin McCarthy is. I want you to listen to what he said. Kevin McCarthy has known for months now that he doesn't have 218, yet he's dragged us 
the conference, the Republican conference, Congress, and the country up until the brink of this moment. Up until last night, and including at this moment, I still can vote for Kevin McCarthy if we can come to an agreement that changes the status quo. Okay, then come. What's key there is he says he could still get to where he would vote for Kevin McCarthy, but Kevin McCarthy is making concession after concession to these hardliners who have said they will not vote for him. Are you comfortable with the concessions that he's making? Look, Kevin has negotiated in good faith, and the truth is you can't beat someone with no one. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has a majority of support of the conference, and I and many of my colleagues will support the concessions that the leader has made under the condition that he be uh, elected speaker. The speaker vote is first. So to my colleagues, as I said in a letter last week, if you want us to accept these concessions that you have been advocating for, that have been so critical behind your uh, withholding support for Kevin, then you need to support Kevin. Uh, otherwise, those rules will not pass. So even if it weakens him, it's still just important for him to become speaker, is what you're saying? It's not going to be a question of weakening him. Uh, he will have the support of the conference, uh, and we will move forward with our agenda, our commitment to America. It's what we ran on. It's what we got elected on. Uh, and we will move forward with it. So he's not going to be weakened by this. The motion to vacate at the end of the day, uh, it is a procedure that has been in place uh, for over 100 years. Uh, it is uh, not something that I am uh, overly concerned about. And uh, at the end of the day, the conference uh, will dictate who the speaker is, not any one individual member. It's notable to hear you say that you're not that concerned about that, because I've heard from other Republicans say Kevin McCarthy should not accept that at all. You've got an upcoming meeting at 930 with House Republicans. What are you expecting to happen in that meeting? We'll see. You know, I think uh, I think obviously there's a lot of uh, passionate opinions on this on both sides of this. Uh, but I think ultimately the objective is to come together as a conference and move forward and get about the business of the American people. But the reality is we can't do anything until we elect a speaker. And the only person who wins here is Joe Biden and Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer. So if my colleagues, like Scott Perry, like Matt Gates, want to get about the business uh, of uh, oversight, if they want to get about the business of reining in spending, then we need to elect a speaker. Uh, and the American people are not interested in this petty uh, fight uh, that is going on. Uh, and they're frankly uninterested in the rules. They're more interested in the laws that are going to impact their lives. It could get chaotic. We'll see what happens today. I do want to ask you before you go, you are from New York. George Santos, we've just confirmed this morning, CNN has confirmed that Brazilian authorities are reopening an investigation they have into him. He's already under investigation by local and federal prosecutors here in the United States. Is he a distraction from the Republican conference? Listen, his conduct uh, is embarrassing uh, and unbecoming. Uh, and it is certainly a distraction. Uh, there are multiple investigations, as you said. I have said he should cooperate fully with those investigations. Uh, his election has been certified, so he will be seated uh, in, in this uh, Congress. Um, but ultimately, uh, obviously, we will see what the investigations uh, come back with. Uh, there are numerous uh, investigations at federal, state, and local, uh, as well as international. Um, and it's just, it's very unfortunate uh, and disappointing. Congressman-elect, soon to be congressman, thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us. I know you've got thank your you. family here today and a lot going on, so thank you. Poppy and Don, of course, a notable moment there to hear from that on George Santos, which we have been covering closely here, but also just the broader look at what today could look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty there in D.C. this morning. Caitlin, we'll check back. Thank you very much.
A school outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, ripped apart by a possible tornado, and there is a threat of more severe weather across the South today. We're going to take you live to Louisiana. Our teacher let us know, and our teacher um, said it's okay, and she actually wanted us to be safe. And I'm really proud of her because she's a good teacher. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So many times in this game and in our job as well, we use the cliches, you know, I'm ready to die for this. I'm willing to give my life for this. It's, it's time to go to war. And I think sometimes we use those things so much, we forget that part of living this dream is putting your life at risk. What happened on the football field last night? Quite shocking, quite shocking. We're covering it all. Good morning, everyone. Poppy and I are here in New York. There you see Caitlin is in Washington on Capitol Hill as the new Congress begins. We have to begin with the big story that everyone is talking about, and that is Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills safety suffering from cardiac arrest after a hit during the first quarter of last night's game against Cincinnati. He collapsed just moments after the play. And right now, he's in the hospital, so we'll take you live outside of the hospital where Damar is being treated. We'll have an update on his condition, how the NFL is responding this morning, all that in just moments. And I'm live on Capitol Hill this morning, where in just a few hours from now, the 118th Congress is set to convene. Obviously, Republicans are supposed to take over the majority, and after those hard-fought elections across the country, a new batch of lawmakers are also going to be sworn in across both parties. But right now, we are also focusing on how Leader McCarthy is facing a tough election of his own. The speakership, a critical meeting between Republicans, is set to happen in just moments from now. But first, we have to get to a terrifying moment during Monday Night Football. Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, collapsing after making a tackle. The Bills say that he suffered a cardiac arrest and his heartbeat was restored on the field. He is hospitalized in critical condition this morning. The scene on the field was really unlike any we have seen before. Players on both teams were overcome with emotion, consoling each other and praying for Hamlin, crying. The game itself was suspended, but it took the NFL more than an hour to announce the final decision. Let's go straight to CNN's Adrian Broadus, live for us outside the University of Cincinnati Medical Center where Hamlin is being treated. Adrian, hello to you. What do we know about his condition? Well, according to a tweet published by the Bills, he is in critical but stable condition here at the hospital behind me. The Bills also tweeting he was sedated and ventilators are breathing for him right now. I spoke just moments ago with a close friend of his who said he is surrounded by family. If you're just waking up to this news, it all happened on the first Monday night football game of the year. Following a tackle, he stood up and then collapsed. CPR was administered on the field. An ambulance also came onto the field and transported him, the 24-year-old, to this hospital. We also learned that he did suffer a cardiac arrest. This has been devastating. People have been talking about it, as you all know, Don and Poppy, online, but it hits most for his friends and family. The game did end, and we know 
the 24-year-old to fight on the field and attempt and try to lead his team to victory. But right now, he's fighting for his life. Be patient right right now. I think there's a lot of uh, narratives going around and, you know, a lot of people want certain answers. But like this is a human being who has a family um, and, and their well-being, his well-being is, is what's most important. Um, but I'm excited for him to, to bounce back from this because DeMar is someone who he will he will use things like this adversity and he'll make sure he inspires plenty of other people along the way. And I think, I think that's key. It's important to be patient. Yes, as journalists, we want answers. We have so many questions. But keep in mind, this is a family at their son's bedside, a mother at her son's bedside. She saw this all unfold. So it's important for us to take a step back and wait for them to update us so we can share that information with the public. Don. Right on with your assessment. Thank you, Adrian Broadus, reporting from Cincinnati this morning. Let's talk about everything we know this morning. So a lot of unknowns, a lot of unknowns. But uh, CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner is with us and Buffalo Bills beat reporter for the Post Standard in Syracuse, New York. Matt Perino, Matt was in the stadium uh, last night covering all this. So, Matt, let me begin with you. What was it like to be there? What did it feel like? What did you see? Um, I, I felt like it was a scene out of a movie. I mean, when it first happened, uh, I obviously am covering the game live. I saw DeMar make the tackle and and bounce up. And so I went down to, to tweet uh, what happened on the play. And when I got back up to look at the field, um, he was down and somebody was down. And I, I thought it couldn't have been DeMar. I'd just seen him pop back up and then I replay plays. And it's, it's a scene where I, I'm quickly trained as a reporter to look at, you know, the medical professionals on the field and how they're reacting to the situation. And, I saw one, um, whether it be a paramedic or uh, an EMT that was on a, a walkie-talkie, and you could see the urgency in her face. And then all of a sudden you pan to the players who have been around this game their entire life. They've seen big-time hits. It's a very violent sport. And just the, the reaction, the, the emotional response, and uh, clinging to each other, Stefan Diggs, uh, Bill's wide receiver, pulling his jersey over his face, um, 20 yards away from the scene. It was, it was emotional and it was scary, to be honest. Yeah. Dr. Ryan, I want to bring you in. Um, you know, after working with you for years, I know that you were the former vice president cardiologist. This is your area of expertise. Yeah. As you watched what happened and you see this video, talk to us about the possibilities. We know that it was a cardiac arrest. There's a, they're saying that this Komodo cortis not confirmed, but it was probably that. Take us through what you think happened. Right. So what we know, Don, is that he had um, a cardiac arrest. He had CPR. And then at some point uh, he was uh, shocked with a defibrillator and that occurring after a direct blow to the left side of his chest is very consistent with this entity called commotio cordis, which is Latin for agitation of the heart. And what happens if a, a blow to the chest occurs in just the wrong place at just the wrong time, literally, you know, time for a millisecond, in the wrong place in the cardiac cycle, a very fast and very irregular uh, heart rhythm uh, will ensue that essentially causes the heart to quiver. So instead of contracting forcefully, which causes your heartbeat and your blood pressure, the heart quivers, and the, the technical term is fibrillates, and that causes the blood pressure to drop to zero. And it takes about six seconds for somebody to pass out 
once their heart starts to fibrillate. And if you go back and look at the tape, uh, he's hit in the chest, uh, looks like with a helmet, right on the left side of his chest over his heart. Uh, within about uh, two seconds, he gets up, and then two or three seconds later, he's down. And that's completely consistent with how long it would take for your blood pressure to drop uh, to nothing uh, if your heart started to fibrillate. What's important now is how long it took for them to resuscitate him. Yeah, He's made the first big step, which is to survive to get to the hospital. Uh, everything now depends on how long it took for them to restore an effective uh, blood pressure. What chances of survival for something usually like this? Does it depend on what you just said, how quickly they restarted his heart and he got to the hospital and so on? Right. Uh, so I've taken care of hundreds of people with cardiac arrest uh, from a variety of causes. And what I, the first thing I tell uh, the family, once the patient gets to the hospital, they've made the biggest first step, and that the best case scenario is that they can recover fully. Mm -hmm. But there are a bunch of hurdles to get over, and just the same as if you're running a race where you have to jump over hurdles, you don't jump over them all at the same time. So you have to go over them one at a time. So the first step is for him to be stable overnight. Uh, they may have cooled him, which is a technique we use sometimes, cool the body temperature down to protect the brain. If they did that, they won't wake him up for another day. And then uh, we wait. We wait to see what his neurologic status is. You know, Matt, we just think about Buffalo and what that city's been through just, you know, in the last year. The, the racially motivated shooting at Top Supermarket the blizzard that killed 39 people. Now this, and Coy Wire, who was on the Bills, was telling us how tight this team is, the Buffalo Mafia, as they call it. Do you have any insight into what the teammates are saying this morning? Do they even want to play this game again? Um, yeah, it's really hard to say just because we haven't been able to talk to any of the players. And, you know, the, the team was at the facility. The bus has left a little bit after midnight yesterday. But it's hard to imagine just from a human standpoint going through that and you mentioned how how close the bond is you know within the community and the team but then within the team itself the culture that sean mcdermott has built here i mean it is a brotherhood these whenever anybody talks about their own success on this team it usually is followed with something about other players on the team other coaches on the team and the the visceral reaction that you saw last night on the field i mean it was obvious there's videos everywhere it was People are going to be going through something. The trauma that this caused, Troy Vincent, the EVP of uh, Game Day Operations, mm -hmm. spoke about this last night. Just He, he was a 14-year NFL veteran, and it's something that he had never seen before. And you have to consider that. The human side is they're all going through this. I just have one quick question for you, doctor, before we go, and that is, so how soon? Everyone wants to know, how's he doing? How's he doing? When do you think we'll hear next from the medical team, and what do you think we will hear? Well, it depends whether they're using this cooling technique that I uh, told you about, because when we, when we use that, we keep people asleep uh, fully for, uh, we keep them cold for 24 hours and then start to uh, slowly warm them. We don't typically allow them to wake up for about uh, 48 hours. So if they did that, we might not, uh, we might not hear uh, much until uh, tomorrow. We'll have to see. Now, if he's starting to move his extremities and starting to respond to sounds, that would be a ter terrific sign. And I'd love uh, if we heard that today. But if we don't, that's not necessarily bad news. This can take uh, days. Okay. Uh, Dr. Reiner, thank you. Help us understand it so much better. And to you, Matt, as well, having been there. Thanks for the perspective. Thanks so much. Sure. Caitlin. Yeah. 
Well, this morning here in Washington, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is still struggling to get the support that he needs only hours away from today's vote for speaker. Right now, McCarthy has the support or most of the conference, but he is short critical votes. That's what's important here. Even after he has made major concessions to the group of hardline Republicans who are against him, CNN's Mani Raju and Lauren Fox are joining us this morning. Obviously, the big question is what happens. Right now, we know he's not at 218. We just heard from Scott Perry putting out a statement that doesn't sound very helpful. And so it's really anyone's guess what is going to happen today. Yeah, I mean, this you rarely are in a moment in history, in Congress, where things are so unpredictable and they are so significant of its outcome. And here we are at that very moment. I mean, selecting a speaker is not just a name, naming a random person or a game of musical chairs. This is the, one of the most powerful positions in government, someone who will drive a party's agenda, someone who will set, determine policies that affect the lives of so many people here. And we don't know who the speaker is going to be. We don't know what Kevin McCarthy's future is, and we don't know how long this will take. This is why we have not seen this in 100 years, because the first order of business in the new House House is to elect a speaker. The House cannot govern until there is a new speaker. And right now, Kevin McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes in order to get the 218 he needs of the majority of the House to be elected speaker. He has five hard no's. There are another nine who are warning that they'll vote against him. You mentioned Scott Perry. That is a very bad sign for him. So if there is no vote for 218, this will go on and on and on. And I'm told that Kevin McCarthy is prepared to dig in, prepared to let this go on to multiple ballots, hours and hours and hours. And they expect this morning at 9.30 a.m. a very tense discussion with all Republicans meet to discuss today and how it's going to turn out. Yeah. And Mike Lawler just was on a few moments ago. He told us that Kevin McCarthy does plan to stay on the floor today. Lauren, what does it actually look like after they take that first vote? If it does make history by him failing to actually clinch the speaker's gavel, what does that look like in practicality after that? I mean, this is another huge question. We don't really know what it looks like because there are a couple of options here. They can keep voting. They can keep having this vote over and over again, or they can try to adjourn. But if they're going to recess the House, they need 218 votes to do that. That means you have to get all of those hardliners to agree to let you get off the floor and save you the embarrassment. If they can't get those votes, they either need Democratic help or they are going to just have to continue to try to negotiate this on the floor while cameras are all watching. That is why it's going to be so riveting. That is why we are all sort of on the edge of our seats today to understand what's going to happen next. Kayla, there really is no alternative candidate That's what I was going to ask. Is there anyone who could actually get the support to be speaking? No, because there's so many issues here, right? So the, the conservatives keep saying, oh, there's a mystery candidate who's going to emerge, or an alternative candidate. But there are so many members of the Republican conference who are saying, we're not going to accept your last-second candidate. So even if they come up with some alternative candidate, that person can't get 218 like votes. Like Scalise or anyone like that? Even Scalise, a number of Republicans that we both yeah. talked to over the last several days made very clear that Scalise, they would not necessarily support him for the position because because they said they would essentially give in to the people that they call, or they are openly calling hostage takers. Members of the Republican conference calling other members hostage takers, trying to get their own speaker in, involved here. And Steve Scalise has kept his head down. He's supporting Kevin McCarthy, but he himself has not said what he would do or if he would challenge McCarthy for the position. So just so much uncertainty of who it may be. And Lauren, we've talked about the concessions that Kevin McCarthy is making here yeah. to these group of hardliners. But a lot of them, they just don't like Kevin McCarthy, whether he supported primary opponents of theirs or things that he said, you know, when it comes to, to moments like that. 
Is there anything he can really offer them that would actually get him to 218, or are they just they don't want Kevin at all? Well, such a revealing moment on that conference call on Sunday night, and I'm expecting that the same issue is going to come up today, is when Kevin McCarthy said he was willing to hand conservatives a major concession on their ability to oust the speaker or at least call for a vote to oust the speaker with just five members. Matt Gates still said that was not enough for him. And I talked to Ralph Norman yesterday on the phone. He said his issues have nothing to do with the rules package and much more to do with the budget, making sure we have a balanced budget. There's so many different things they're asking for that trying to coalesce around what specifically he could give them right now, it's still such an open question. And I think, like you said, some of them just don't like Kevin McCarthy. And it's really hard to convince someone who doesn't like you, who doesn't want you to have the job, that you can give them something to change their mind. And this is why Kevin McCarthy tried so hard, spent so much money in the elections to try to get what he called a governing majority. That's what his allies wanted. They wanted 230 seats. They wanted 240 seats. Or certainly not 222 seats because they're in the very problem that they were fearing would essentially happen here. And now they have to deal with it as a result. And as you said, I talked to Congressman Bob Good yesterday, one of those hard no's. He said even if Kevin McCarthy gave him everything, he would still vote no. So that is the real problem here, that no matter what Kevin McCarthy does, he still has this immovable conference who doesn't really care whether or not they the, this, the Congress goes into chaos because, in a sense, they, they believe that it will achieve their objective here. And if you zoom out for a second, one of the complaints of conservatives is that McCarthy thought he was going to have a larger majority, and therefore he didn't really start those conversations early enough in Scott Perry's mind. And I think that is really going to be a determining factor today as to why some of these conservatives just aren't going to get on board. Yeah. Fascinating moment. Lauren Fox, Mani Raju, thank you both. I know you got a big day ahead of you, so thanks for joining us. Ahead, Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania is also going to join us live to tell us what he thinks about McCarthy's chances and if he himself would maybe even go over the speaker role. Don Poppy, a lot of drama happening here on Capitol Hill. I know that's not an unusual sentence, but today kind of stands out more than the others. Oh, today it's truer than most days, Caitlin. <laughs> we'll check back. Thank yeah. you. Up next, more on the hit that sent Bill safety Damar Hamlin into cardiac arrest. Damar's friend, who's at the hospital, is going to join us live with an update on his condition. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Uh, after about an hour last night, as you know now, the NFL suspended uh, the NFL game after DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field, the Bills' safety. Uh, the NFL uh, now coming under some scrutiny for waiting for that. But there are so many questions this morning. We're joined by Rodney McLeod Jr., who plays safety for the Indianapolis Colts, the same position that Hamlin plays for the Bills. Thanks very much for, for being with us this morning. And I... You know, we can't put ourselves in your shoes. This is your position, right? And this, this, could yes. have, this could have been you. What did you think when you saw it? What are your thoughts this morning? Uh, good morning to everybody. And first and foremost, you know, my prayers go out to the Hamlin family, Damar's friends and teammates. Uh, you know, as, as players, injuries are always our deepest fear. Uh, and we glamorize this sport uh, simply because of the financial stability that it can provide for our families. But often, you know, we tend to try to remove any of those thoughts the moment we hit the field, that injuries are real and that they exist um, in this sport. And so the injuries we are most common to seeing are ligament tears, uh, such as MCLs, uh, ACLs, um, muscle strains, broken bones, 
uh, and concussions. As we know, concussions are very, um, they happen often in our sport. And we've become very numb to it, uh, unfortunately. But you've also seen the sense of urgency rise um, and increase from the league, uh, from being able to uh, implement new uh, quality of, of helmets to new tackling uh, uh, rules and, and all those sorts of things. And so, you know, what we saw last night uh, was something that we've never seen before. In my 11 years in the NFL, I've never experienced anything like that. And that brings the reality to the sport, uh, to life. And we're talking about a man who collapsed, who laid breathless, who, um, you know, unfortunately is fighting, is fighting for his life. And so for us, the, the dream is real, but the dream, you know, even though we understand the dream comes with great sacrifice, we never want that sacrifice to be paid from the expense of, of anyone's life. Yeah. What questions do you have this morning? You talk to me. What questions? Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, it, it's simply you know wondering is he okay? Uh, what's what's the the, the status? Uh, I think you know the NFL as a whole, us as a band of brothers. Last night, you saw the the concern. You saw the overwhelming amount of prayers go out um, and uplifting. You know that young man in this moment um, as he battles for his life. Uh, you never want to see that. And so I think for us, we just want to make sure that he's all right, as you saw from uh, a lot of his teammates as well. How do you think the NFL did uh, handling this? Obviously, as you said, it's never happened before. It's unprecedented. How'd they do? I think they did a, a very uh, a good job. Uh, they they put the uh, concern of of their players first. Uh, they prioritize us and our feelings and our emotions. And you saw that from both teams, specifically the Bills. Uh, they were not in a state of mind to be able to c- finish that game. And so the league took that in consideration and they did the right thing at, at, at stopping this. And, and, and like I said, prioritizing our health. Uh, we have to do that uh, as players as well. We can't turn our backs. We can't walk away. Uh, we cannot stay in silence when injuries do occur because uh, it's real and they have long-term effects. Yeah. Uh, Rodney, Rodney McLeod, we're really grateful for you being here with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you. So joining us now is Jordan Rooney. He's Damar Hamlin's friend and marketing representative. Thank you so much. Um, I have been, Jordan, can you hear us? Are you there? Jordan Rooney, can you hear anything out of this? Jordan, can you hear us? All right. So uh, Jordan, again, is a representative uh, and a friend of really close to Damar him. Hamlin's, really yeah. close to him. And so we're going to have technical difficulties, um, obviously. We'll get to um, back to him and correct that for you to get an update. He's been providing condition, mm-hmm. the condition uh, of Jordan Hamlin uh, online and speaking to the medium. We're going to talk to him in just a moment. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back and see him this morning. So I want to get back now to the hospital where Damar Hamlin's friend and marketing rep is standing by, and that's Jordan Rooney. Jordan, we appreciate you joining us again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I understand that you're at the hospital. Uh, you've been there all night with the parents. What do you know? Uh, yeah, I would say there, there's not any concrete updates. I, I can't speak specifically on you know his medical condition 
or things like that. Um, I would say right now we're just taking it hour by hour. You know, Jordan, you know him uh, better, I think, than anyone we've talked to this morning on the program. I'm really sorry um, for what this must be like for you emotionally this morning. Can you just tell us about him as a guy? I mean, everything we've heard is he's extraordinary. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, it gets thrown around a lot. Like, you know, he's more than an athlete, but I mean, he truly is someone that like, he's in the NFL because he wants to be a role model. Like part of what drives DeMar is to be an example for the other young people in his community. I mean, he is someone that truly embodies what it means to to be someone you want to look up to. I mean, wow. toy drives, back to school drives. Just, I mean, just giving people time out of his day. I mean, DeMar is, is the ideal professional athlete so i've got you said listen you can't talk specifically i know that you're not a a medical person here but there was an update that you said his vitals are back to normal and they have put him to sleep and put a breathing tube down his throat they're currently running tests that was um obviously last night but when he so was he conscious when he went to the hospital and the day yeah go on yeah so you know once i i can't speak specifically on that so my update was more of you know, there was a lot of speculation going on at the time of what was going on with him because people ha- had seen CPR being performed. So, you know, his condition was was stable at the time. Um, but that, you know, wasn't saying that, you know, hey, everything is everything's perfectly fine now. It was that, you know, they, they got him into a, a stable condition at least. Um, and from there, they were going to do testing. And that, that's what's been been going on since then. And his family his vitals is the- were stable. His vitals were stable, you said. That's, you know, it, I can't speak medically to it, but at the time, that's, a, that's what was going on. Yeah. And his, his mom is there, his family's there. Can you take us inside of, you know, what's happening and, and what, they're, uh, what you saw and what they're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, he's a strong family. I mean, he has the, the ideal support system. Um, I mean, they're optimistic. Demar, Demar is someone that, that you would trust and, and believe to, to come out on, on top of, of anything that, that he is faced with. So, you know, they, don't, they, they know Demar. I know Demar. Um, and we're confident that no, no matter what he's facing, he, he is going to come out on top. Let's, Jordan, talk a little bit more about the Demar you know. I want to play for our viewers something he said in November, talking about one of his, uh, one of his teammates who was injured. Here's how he talked about you know, the fragility of life. You never know when, like, the last day could be that you getting to experience something like this, you know, so I'm just, I'm cherishing it every moment I can. Man, he's only 24. Yeah, I mean, he, Damar is, uh, you know, emotionally intelligent. I mean, he's compassionate. I mean, he's someone that, I mean, he could turn it on in a second, be charismatic, um, He's great with people. I mean, he, he is someone that, and you know, I think the more you talk to people, you know him. Like it, 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 I'm not just saying it to say it. Like it could be confirmed. Like there, there isn't, there isn't that many people who are like Demar. And, and for him, like, you know, I view something like this is just, it's just another step along the way to his journey of uh, inspiring more people. Jordan, we talked about his family, um, his mom, um, obviously, uh, and our hearts go out to them. Um, but also, the, let's talk about the players and what they're dealing with. We saw the emotion really spilling over, uh, obviously, onto the field and just all over the, the country last night as people watched this in shock. 
Talk to us about what the players are dealing with at this moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak specifically, you know, for those players. I mean, I think it's, it's probably a lot of mixed emotions for them. I mean, you, you know, you get to see the reactions. Um, I think it's just important for everyone to know, like, you can't dehumanize these guys. Like, you know, you may watch them on TV. You may be a fan of them. But, like, this is very real. There's very real emotions involved with this. Um, and I think you, you got to see that from that, them last night. But I can't speak specifically on how they're feeling. Well, Jordan, we're so uh, grateful to you. We know it's a very tough moment. We're grateful to, to you for coming on. Um, and our condolences to, you know, as to what happened. Uh, but will you tell the family we're thinking about them and we're hoping that he pulls through and we're hoping that everything works out okay. So thank you so much, okay? Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Jordan Rooney, as you said, uh, probably the closest person. I think so, that yeah. we've heard from for sure. Yeah. So, uh, Caitlin, we're watching what happens there uh, in Cincinnati, and we're watching what's happening in Washington right now. Yeah, two major stories that are playing out this morning here on Capitol Hill. The new Congress is, you know, Don and Poppy is said to convene today. The vote for the House Speaker is just a few hours away, but very much still in question. As Kevin McCarthy has still been working to lock down the votes that he needs to take the gavel. We've learned that he met privately with some of his potential opponents ahead of today's high-stakes vote. Joining us now is Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. Thank you so much. You know, the question is, is Kevin McCarthy going to get to 218 today? Uh, he'll get there. I don't know if it's going to be today. Um, that's going to be an open question. We have a meeting at uh, 9 o'clock this morning. Uh, so what you're going to see transpire today, you're going to see Cheryl Johnson. Everyone's going to know her name soon. She's a clerk of the House. Uh, she's going to gavel out around noon. She's going to gavel out the 117th uh, Congress, gavel on the 118th. Um, and since there's no rules uh, passed yet, she has the authority to only do two things. Number one, call a quorum vote, where we all show up and vote present on the floor. And then second, call the speaker vote. And she only has the authority to call the speaker vote if nobody gets a 218 to call it the second time, the third time, um, until or if somebody makes a privileged motion to adjourn, which also requires 200, uh, 218 votes. So uh, a lot of it's uh, uncertain as to how it's going to play out today. It's going to be dependent on... Uh, some of the detractors that are still asking for some more concessions by um, Speaker-elect McCarthy. So if it doesn't happen today, how long could it take? Who knows? I mean, it's taken six months in, in, in the history of our country a few times, right? Um, so we just don't know the answer to that. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, in the first round what the vote tally is. Um, the second round, apparently a new name is going to be offered. Nobody knows who that is. Um, but our colleagues in the Freedom Caucus have indicated that they're going to offer somebody's name up. Uh, we don't know if that's someone inside or outside of the conference. Uh, if it's someone inside, then they have to accept that nomination and presumably vote for themselves. So uh, a lot of that's unknown right now. So it's going to be an interesting thing to watch play out. Well, your name has been floated <clears throat> as a potential alternative, as people have been asking, you know, who else is viable? Who else could actually get the support? Yeah, I think Kevin's going to be the speaker. I don't think there's any question about it. I think the question is how many rounds it takes. And how many rounds are you prepared to, to vote for him? For? Well, you know, as long as he's in, you know, we've committed to support him. You know, the guy, loyalty's got to be... What do you mean as long as he's in? Well, as long as he's considering, uh, as long as he's nominated uh, on the floor. So if his name is up for consideration, you know, you, you got if people put in the work, that, that's got to that's gotta pay off for them at some point. And Kevin... You know, he's led the GOP for, for four years now. He's brought them from the majority, the minority to the majority. Uh, he's worked very, very hard. He's got very broad support throughout the conference. And, um, you know, that's, that's got to that's mean something. So 
Um, I think that he's going to get there. I really do. He's been making these concessions to the hardliners who are right now still no votes against him. Does he have more concessions he can offer to them, you think? Well, uh, the problem is the concessions keep changing uh, as far as what's being asked of him. Um, so I know, you know, we had a meeting with him last night. Uh, he met with some of uh, his detractors last night as well. So it's an evolving situation. Um, you know, obviously the issue of the motion to vacate the chair, uh, which essentially is a uh, Jeffersonian rule um, that allows one member to basically call for the, um, the vacation of the speakership. Um, and that's been uh, a subject of debate because it was used to weaponize um, certain people against uh, then Speaker Boehner, which made it very, very hard for the House to operate. So that's been a point of contention. Um, he could bring it down to one technically. I don't know what that would mean for the more centrist members of Congress. Um, but a lot of that's in flux. So yeah, are you worried about the concessions that he's making? I'm not. I think a lot of them are, are good. They're, they're meant to be uh, open the House up, uh, have more member input. Uh, that's something that a lot of us want, by the way. Uh, there's 435 members of the House, and yet the way things have currently and, and previously run, not all 435 members have an equal voice. Uh, it should be that way because we all represent roughly 700,000 people. Uh, each one of those 700,000 people in each one of our districts are entitled to an equal voice on the floor of the House. Um, so to the extent that that's the end goal here, we support that. You've been talking to Kevin McCarthy. What's his <clears throat> mindset right now? Well, he knows how many votes he has, and he knows how many votes are still open. Uh, some people have committed to voting against him. Some people have uh, been more ambiguous about it. So uh, we're not going to know until the vote is called today exactly where people stand, and we're just going to have to watch each successive round uh, play out. But I do believe he's going to get there. If it's not Kevin McCarthy, do you think the alternatives is someone who's in the House or someone who's outside of the outside House? Outside of the House. Really? Uh, I don't think, yes. I don't think that there's um, enough people that are willing to set the precedent that you can work for four years and uh, uh, bring a party from the minority to the majority and then get jettisoned at the end. Uh, nobody's ever going to put the work in uh, if that happens. So I think that the, uh, the impetus would be to go outside of the House at that point. Who, who from outside the House potentially? It could be. Who knows? I mean, we're not even thinking that far uh, because I really do believe Kevin's going to get there. So uh, we'll cross that bridge if and when it comes, but I don't think we're going to get there. We'll see if you do. Congressman, thank you for joining us to, to share some insight. I know you have a very busy meeting coming up at 9 o'clock with we your do. other yep. fellow Republicans. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yep. Don Poppy, interesting there. You know, we've been talking about who could be an alternative. He says maybe it's someone who's outside the House that could be an alternative House Speaker. I'm just saying, I have been talking off Caitlin's ear about this <laughs> last week saying, can that happen? Can that happen? It we'll can. see. It can. Anything can happen. Yeah. yeah. Anything is possible. Okay, so in just a few hours, the suspect in the killing of four Idaho college students will face a judge. We're going to speak to a former homicide detective about the criminal profile of this suspect. Today, the man now suspected of killing four University of Idaho college students will make his first appearance in a Pennsylvania court. His name is Brian Koberger. His attorney says his client will uh, waive extradition, which will speed up his return to Idaho, where he's been charged with four counts of first-degree murder and felony burglary. He, his attorney says he believes he is going to be exonerated and that he should be presumed innocent until proven otherwise. It took investigators seven weeks to find him as a suspect, seven weeks after the victims were found stabbed to death in their off-campus home. The murder weapon has not been found. Police have also not at least publicly confirmed a motive, but through DNA, sources say investigators 
honed in on Koberger as their main suspect. Joining us now is former NYPD uh, homicide detective and hostage negotiator, also an adjunct professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Alfred Titus Jr. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Professor, detective, <laughs> all your hats. Thank um, you. I find it super interesting that you have the same degree, a PhD in criminology, that uh, Koberger was going for. Let's just start with the DNA link that they said led them here. Yes. Well, DNA has become um, vitally important in investigations throughout the, the years. In this particular case, it is the key to identifying the suspect in this case. Um, they were able to find a small trace amount of DNA, and through the DNA process, through the uh, genealogy process, they were able to narrow it down probably to an individual, and, and then the profile of the individual comes into play and all of the other aspects, and they got their man. From a crime scene, can, you, can, can it be an indicator of certain personality traits mm. as we had uh, someone who was, he was a, the TA, right? This right. Koberger was his TA. Yes. Um, and he said, you know, he had exhibited sort of, uh, he seemed aloof in the last couple uh, of, of days before mm. and during what, what happened. But can you pick up a personality, personality traits from a crime scene? Absolutely. Um, a crime scene tells a lot about the individual who commits the crime. Um, <clears throat> I, I, am, I am under the impression that this crime scene was meticulously handled, meaning that there were, that, that things were purposely cleaned and removed. And, and, and you know, he, being someone who studied um, criminology, he purposely tried his best not to leave any evidence anywhere. So um, that tells you a lot about an individual. Not only it tell about the individual himself, but his mindset. Um, it is definitely predetermined. It is planned. It is, it is completely um, like a blueprint for this individual. But if you, you said, you know, he purposely did these things, but even having going for the degree that, that you have and trying to be what you are, right, mm -hmm. professionally, is there such a thing as the perfect, you know, well, cleaning up the evidence <laughs> and the perfect crime? Apparently and that sort of not, thing? Yeah. if they right. got DNA. Absolutely. That is, that is Shouldn't the problem. Shouldn't he know that? Yeah. Right. He should, he should have known that. That is the problem. Regardless of how careful you are at a crime scene, you will, the minute you walk into a room, you're leaving DNA in that room. Whether you realize it or not, whether it can be collected or not, you're leaving DNA in that room just from skin cells falling off of your off of your hands or whatever. So there is always DNA everywhere. And he should have been aware of that. Um, I just believe that he did not think that the police would be, be able to to get this type of DNA from him. I'm sure he's very surprised the FBI was brought in. Um, he's very surprised that the case went to this that depth. He was probably under the impression that the Idaho Police Department was going to handle this, and he felt he probably felt he was smarter than them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alfred Titus Jr., thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate thank it. you. We really appreciate it. Now this, he told lie after lie to get elected. Now, just hours before he takes office, Brazil may revive a fraud case against Congressman-elect George Santos. That reporting is next. I always joke, I'm Catholic, but I'm also Jew. 
ish, as in ish. I grew up fully aware that my grandparents were Jewish, came from, from a Jewish family, and they were refugees to Brazil. And that was always the story I grew up with, and I've always known it very well. I mean, we could go through all the lies. There are some that are up there, but how long Oy. would that take us, right? Not Jewish, but Jew hyphen ish, the descendant of Holocaust, not the descendant of Holocaust survivors. And he's never worked for Goldman Sachs. Those are just some of the lies Congressman-elect George Santos told to get elected. And despite those lies being exposed, Santos will be sworn in today into Congress. I, it's Unbelievable. And now Brazilian officials are likely to reinstate fraud charges against him. In 2008, he reportedly made purchases using a stolen checkbook and a fake name. Last month, CNN confirmed a report from The New York Times that Santos was charged with embezzlement in a Brazilian court in 2011. That charge was achieved after officials couldn't track him down. So... He reportedly already uh, was in the United States. So uh, let's see, it was an archive, not achieved. I said that wrong. Archived after they couldn't track him down. So joining us now, New York Times reporter Grace Ashford and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon. Uh, hello to both of you. Grace, hi, Caitlin is there as well. Grace, you, you have been reporting on this story out of Brazil uh, where Santos is denying that he committed a crime, saying there's nothing criminal and never nothing ever happened, right? But... The report said that he has previously admitted to it. Another shocking twist here. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, uh, this comes right on the eve of uh, Santos's um, swearing in uh, to Congress today. Um, it's certainly a layer of unwanted additional scrutiny. Um, and yes, he's he's completely denied the existence of these charges uh, that we raised in our reporting a couple of weeks ago. Um, but but the court doc the court record shows that Mr. Santos actually did admit to using this checkbook um, uh, both to police and to the shop owner um, who he sent a message to on a Brazilian social media site promising to pay. Um, and it was you know only after Mr. Santos and his mother actually admitted that he had stolen this checkbook and made these purchases you know that uh, the procedure you know that the charges were approved um, and that the procedure was able to continue. Of course. Yeah. Uh, after that happened, Mr. Santos could not be found by prosecutors, and our reporting shows that he actually returned to the United States. Caitlin, uh, Grace's reporting is super interesting this morning because she also outlines how this case is going to proceed, right? It's been, you know, referred to the Justice Department. They'll notify him of the charges. It'll proceed whether he agrees or not to cooperate at all in a, with him in abstention if it has to. I just wonder, Caitlin, you've been talking to Republicans in the House all morning on the Hill. What do they think of this? Republicans find him really embarrassing. You know, we have talked a lot on this show about Republican leadership being very quiet on this. A lot of that has to do with why I'm here today, that vote for House Speaker for Kevin McCarthy. A lot of people expect that he'll be more vocal once that hit has actually ended. But you also haven't seen a lot of support for George Santos from his fellow Republicans. I mean, he is now under investigation locally, federally, and now with this confirmation internationally in Brazil. And so it just speaks to that. But, you know, you heard Mike Lawler earlier say that his conduct, he believes, is embarrassing. And so, yes, he is going to be sworn in today. He has said that that is still his plan. But Republicans around him are not rallying around him. And I don't think he's going to get a very warm reception here on Capitol Hill. And he's going to face a lot of questions from reporters who basically have unfettered access to lawmakers in the halls of Congress. So, John, listen, um, embarrassed but not embarrassed enough to speak out you know, vocally and forcefully. McCarthy certainly is not really weighing in on this because he needs to think, needs right. the, the, the vote. So where does this put us? What does this say about the culture of lying in our country and what his 
place in the Republican Party. It shows how much we have put the pursuit of power over principle, that shamelessness has become table stakes in politics. And this is all downstream from Donald Trump. Let's be honest about this. Um, To some extent, lying has become normalized or we are in danger of becoming numb to it. This case is so extraordinary, though, because this guy, this isn't, you know, resume embellishment. Fabulous is a fancy word. This is a serial liar about every aspect of his biography. And that raises real questions about Dan Goldman has uh, suggested former federal prosecutor, also incoming uh, freshman congressman, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Lying on financial disclosure forms is also illegal. Um, There are still questions out there. The North Shore Leader, a local paper in his district, reported before the election that his net worth went from in 18 months from being below $5,000 to over 11 million. Yeah, how? So they're still, how? Follow the money. So it's still a lot of questions, but the culture of lying is decreasing trust in our society, which is already plummeting, and that's dangerous for democracy. He said, and how? I mean, listen, Caitlin, Grace, how is he being seated? Like, I am obviously, because you know. Because he has to constitutionally. Well, I, but there should be calls, right, for people. In the old days, we mm-hmm. talked about this. Know. Usually you just exchanged and you're like, listen, I'm sorry. Right. You know, I, I don't have the confidence or the trust of the people who in the voted old days, for me. In the old days, you wouldn't even get seated. They would yeah. refuse to seat you. But yeah. that, that was a, a different deal. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, this is where shamelessness comes in. This is yeah. where character comes in. And this is where Republicans need to lead. Yeah. Hey, Grace, real Doug, quick. Is there, all, hold on one second. I just want to ask Grace if there's any, it, there, before Caitlin, because I want you to end this because that's what you're doing. <clears throat> uh, so I want you to have the final stamp on this. But it's, Grace, is there anything new in the reporting that we should know about before we let Caitlin close us out here? Um, well, I, I, you, you mentioned, but uh, whether, I mean, this is not, um, you know, extradition. This is not, he's not being forced to respond to these charges. So depending on how he chooses to, he could either, you know, stay, continue to serve in Congress. He could go back. He could, I believe they're uh, obtaining local counsel. Um, but if he is found guilty um, in absentia or, you know, in person, he could face one to five years in uh, jail in uh, Brazil and a fine. So these are not, these are small charges, but these are not nothing. Um, so there's that as well. John, Grace, thank you very much. Caitlin, this is why you're there today, to cover all of this madness. Yeah, George Santos is just one of the many who is joining this 118th Congress here that is set to happen in just a few moments. And as Don and Poppy, you were noting, it's going to be a fascinating day to see not just happen, what happens with Kevin McCarthy. Maybe that doesn't actually even come to an end today. You know, it's rare that wow. you hear from some of the best reporters here on the Hill who say, we don't know what's going to happen. But that really is the case for today. Are you telling us you might not be sitting here? Tomorrow you might still be there. <laughs> Come back. I miss you guys. Yeah, we'll see. Back. We'll see how crazy it gets. She's, um, she's gonna need a hug tomorrow. Great <laughs> and great interviews to have all those yeah. lawmakers, Republicans on Democrats morning. Caitlin, see you yeah. soon. Thanks to all of you. What a morning. We're all praying for tomorrow. Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you, everyone. Thank you. Continue CNN. watching. Yep. CNN News Miss Now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.